Are you ready, Hotshot Scott? I am ready, but I don't know if you are. Are you ready? You were so nervous I'm, about I'm this. I'm very, very nervous. This is the most nerve-wracking show <laughs> yeah. of all episodes, our 92nd episode. And it's not that I'm nervous about the arrival of Miles Garrett. This has nothing to do about okay. Miles Garrett Good. becoming a Seattle Seahawks. Has that happened, by the way? Is the introductory press conference happening? Well, I haven't heard from Everyone Loves Nudes lately. But well, once I heard from Barry McCockiner. <laughs> oh, you did? Okay, good. <laughs> from a long line of McCockiners? Uh, from a long line of... <laughs> didn't you tell me that his father was... Oh, a, yeah. He yeah. worked for the Detroit Free yeah. Press. Yeah. He was yeah, a yeah, great yeah. sports journalist. Episode 92. And you know, Hotshot Scott, that Mitch Unfiltered is available... On most podcast platforms, subscribe, listen, and even rate. We enjoy five-star ratings. Yes, we do. So tell everybody, in your words, why this is the most nerve-wracking of all 92 episodes of Mitch Unfiltered, at least for me. I don't know if you, you're feeling the heat yourself. Well, for some reason, you sent out a, a text to Steve Dion and I saying we're going to do a live, we're going to have a live studio audience and we're going to stream the show on Zoom. The right. podcast. Right. I don't know what inspired you to do that. That seems very anti-Mitch Levy. So you're just adding more Vodka. pressure. Is that what it was? <laughs> you and everyone else these days. <laughs> you think drinking's gone way up in the last couple of months? I, I told you I have a friend who sells it for a living, and uh, it's up 70% last I heard. I mean, I'm sorry. It's up. Yeah, it's up. He said 70%. So Are you drinking more than you ever have? Uh, that seems kind of personal, Mitch. I don't know if I want to get into that. Oh, yeah, of course I am. I think everybody is. And now, now you, can get, you can get cocktails from restaurants to go, which is a, a, a new thing. You can get to-go cocktails. So we're doing, we're doing a Zoom studio audience. We are, yes. We're essentially doing a Zoom call while we record episode 92. You haven't hit the applause sign yet for them, though, so I don't know if that's Well, I necessary. have them all I potted down. Okay. I, I have everybody <laughs> muted. We Good. have everybody <laughs> muted, at least for the time being. What I'd like to try to do is not only record the episode for them, talk a little bit about sports with them or for them, then when we get to the last segment, the other stuff segment, maybe we can include some of them with some audience participation if I can figure mechanically how to do all this. Now I'm stressed. Now you I'm are. just as stressed as you are. So Wait, why don't you do it? What? You know, I thought that you're the person I, I am. I can do, do all this. this stuff. I did it for you for oh, two years. Oh, come on. You faked it and you know it. <laughs> I'm the best board up that ever lived. You didn't know that? <laughs> Charlie Brown tried to poach me, for God's sakes. Oh, you had to go there. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a nice tribute. For those of you who think that we're slackers and we only do one show every week, au contraire, mon frère, as, as uh, Lee Corso, Lee Corso yeah. would say, not so fast, my friends. Yes. We do two shows per week. 92P will be available on Thursday morning uh, to patrons only. How do you become a patron, Hotshot Scott? Well, I guess you go to patreon.com slash I would go to Mitch, Mitch Unfiltered. Unfil I would just go to MitchUnfiltered.com and click, click on the, the Become link, a Patron. Yeah. All right. Become a patron. It's very easy. For yep. $5 a month, uh, you get access to all the other shows that we do, including the full Thursday show that we release, the P episodes. And by the way, if you're one of these people that's trying and wants to have the P episodes show up on your podcast app, your Apple podcast app where the other ones do, and you haven't been able to figure out how to do that, I'm here for your service because I am the technological That's right. master. For You've been that your whole life, so. No, just recently. <laughs> just recently. <laughs> I've become the technological master. Uh, by the way, the last four, or some of the last four patrons, they are Sean Carmel, Dan Peach, Mark Wilson, did he not play quarterback for the Oakland Raiders? Not only back that, in the day, I think he's from Washington State. I think he's from Port Angeles. I want to oh, really? say. I think he is. Yeah, I think he's a local kid. At least he BYU. BYU. I think. Yeah, good call. I Mark think he Wilson. came to the. I think he came to the Orange Bowl when we were red hot, and just diced us up. Oh, so before the fifty-eight streak. 
I'm talking about the Miami Dolphins oh, when he was a Raider. I was thinking college, gotcha. A, a very high-scoring game that I was present was like 45-34. I think Mark Wilson was the opposing quarterback, and I think that the, the Raiders out gunned Dan Marino. He was pretty good, Mark Wilson, wasn't he? Him and Plunkett, like, they both like they would go back and yeah, forth on who was sorta, starting. Kind of sort pretty good quarterback, yeah. So Mark Wilson, Bryce Kuhn, Dan Peach, and Sean Carmel. Well, welcome, everybody. Nice to have you. Thank you. And know your name doesn't have to be food in order to become a patron. And the way I figure it is we do five hours a week. About five hours a week. Two, two and a half hour shows. Yep. We do five hours a week. How many commercials, before we start the show, how many commercials did you guys at Cube have? How much programming per hour would you say you guys were on during the morning shows? Well, we did four songs an hour. So that's let's say that's 12 minutes. And then commercials, I would say four minutes, three breaks, uh, 16. So 28 minutes of non-us. So about half and half, half talking, half music and commercials. I recall us doing in the morning, I think we did 15 minutes of spots each hour. Okay. And then we did a couple of minutes of traffic, like two or three yep. traffic. You have the updates too, right? The sports we updates. We have the updates. Yeah. So if you take the 15 minutes of spots and you take two or three minutes of traffic and then a couple of minutes or a minute of promos yep. and then you throw in the, the top of the hour updates, if we did top of the hour updates – I'm figuring that we did about two hours each four-hour show. We, were you on yeah. 6 to 10? Yep. Was about two hours and 48 minutes. Yeah, it's about half, right. Oh, yeah, wait, no, yeah two hours and 48 about, minutes. About two yeah. hours and 45 yeah. minutes. We were on about two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah. So now we do, and that you do that times five. Now we do five hours. We do about two and a half hours for two shows for the patrons. I already need a break. Can I get out of here and get some water really quick? Sure. I'm working too hard. You need water? We don't have commercial breaks. I thought you want drinks. I thought you want alcohol. I (laughs) thought your alcohol's up. I'm ready. All right, batting lineup. The uh, the interviews for episode 92. We've got hitting leadoff. The man who won a golf tournament in Arizona with one club. Do you know which club it was? I'm guessing it was the putter. It was the putter. Anthony Griggs, (sighs) 60-year-old Army veteran, was a really good, better-than-scratch golfer. Oh, really? Yeah, for years and years. He taught himself the game from age 40, and he got to a point where he got so good that it was boring to him. The game was boring. Okay. And Must he, be was, nice. he was looking about a few years ago, he was looking for a way to, to, to show some, to have some more interest in the game, to do something to make it more fun. And somebody said to him, here, play, play around with a putter. And he hasn't played with another club since. He plays with one club when he practices, when he plays, when he plays in tournaments. He plays with a putter, and he won the golf tournament in Arizona. And he plays golf courses from 7,000, from the tips, 7,000, 7,500 yards with one club, a putter. Unbelievable. And if, if you didn't see the video, you wouldn't believe it. You just would not, you would not think it's true. But I've seen video of it. He crushes it it's- with a putter. I want to see him get out of the sand, though. I, that, that I'm intrigued by. He gets out of the sand. He has two different ways he's going to explain. <laughs> he and his caddy. Now... Right. What does the caddy do? He carries one club, <laughs> and they look at each other before every shot, and he says, what are you thinking here? Yeah, right, they exactly. They both look up, and they go, I think it's a putter. Yeah. And he yeah. hands him the putter. Amazing. That's it. So him and the caddy are going to be on episode oh, great. 92. That's awesome. Yeah, and the caddy's from Mill Creek, Washington. Coincidentally. And if that's not enough, by the way, the Scotty, you probably don't know, a Scotty Cameron putter is like an expensive, really top of line. That's okay. what the pros use. A lot of pros use Scotty Cameron putters. The Scotty Cameron putter that he uses or he used broke while he was trying to hit drives off the tee with it. Oh. Right before a round of golf. 
And his buddies were like, well, what are you going to do? And he went across the street to Goodwill. <laughs> yeah. He walked across the street from the golf course that he was playing to Goodwill, and he bought one for $2.99. So now, not only does he only use a putter, he uses a $2.99 Unbelievable. Would, now, would the Scotty, Cam- was Scotty Cameron, is that what you said? Yeah, Scotty Cameron. Would those people say, well, of course it broke. It's not made for that of sort course, of. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's not that it's, it's a crappy club. It's oh, just- no, no, no. Okay. Yeah. It's just not made for that sort of torque no. and velocity. Okay? No. It's, but apparently the goodwill but, ones are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I picture it like red plastic on the end from a putt-putt place. Uh, so you'll hear from him and his caddy. We've got sports and gambling attorney Daniel Wallach on the fascinating Zion Williamson $100 million lawsuit. And we've got Brad Schrade in my constant attempt to do things other than sports, and it's pretty easy these days to do it. Yeah. Um, I wanted to spend some time on the Ahmad Arbery case. Do you know who Ahmad Arbery is? I don't. When I describe to you who he, you don't know him by oh, name. Oh, I do now. Yeah, you yeah, do. yeah. Jogging down the road in yeah. February, 25 years old in Brunswick, Georgia, shot down all the controversy. It's now on video. The video's making the rounds around the world, and it's a huge, there's a lot of race questions, and there's a lot of profiling questions, and it's just become this monster story not only here in the United States but around the world so I'd like to do I have Brad Schrade of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution who has been lit- literally the, the leader the guy out in front in covering this particular story okay All right? yeah it was a guy he was an ex-cop I think and his son correct yeah, I remember the story yeah you got it yeah you got it's it a rough one now is that anything else that you want me to mention in the tease well I know that you've been kind of nervous about having yeah. you're always nervous about pictures and video then you've decided to do this. Are, are you feeling comfortable? Have you ever done a show First like time. this on video? First time. In fact, because guys like Dan Patrick do it every day. But, oh, my God. But they're radio guys. I'm surprised yeah. that they want to do it. Let me tell it, you, you know? how, how insecure I am about the way I look. Okay. Let me just tell you how insecure I am. Please. And about doing photographs. I, I'll just give you, I'll give you three examples. Number one. Every once in a while, my wife is looking for vintage, old, archaic, or photos of me and the boys, whatever, and she's like, you are in no photographs. Literally, there's no photographs. It's always them and her or them, and there's none of me. And then they used to come to me. I I remember they used to come to us, two stories from the KJR days. They used to come to us all the time, charities, and ask us to to auction off an in-studio visit while we're doing the sure. show. You probably, did you guys do those? Oh, yeah. You did those? Yep. No, nothing? Never? I couldn't do them. But it's it's just people visiting. It's not, it's not do, on camera. I couldn't do it. Really? I couldn't, I couldn't do the show. It's not a petting zoo. So every, so every time a charity would come to me and do that, I would just write a check. I'm happy to I'd be pay. like, is there anything I can do just to write a check and so that you don't feel badly that I'm going to decline this? Yeah. Because everybody, you know, every other show was doing it. Every show on every yeah, radio station, it, sure. yeah. every show on our station. And Mitch, of course, is the guy that didn't want I, I just would get, if strangers were in there watching, I was like paralyzed. And that was kind of a small studio. We, had a, we actually had a really big studio with a couch and you couldn't see them. Ever we be- had a big studio, huge studio. Oh, maybe at the last building? I'm, I'm, I'm Second to last and the last building. Because Queen Anne was pretty tight. Oh, the little one. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. that was tight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so. so you never let the charity people no. come. You just wrote a check. And then <laughs> we had a TV station. I don't remember which one it was, NBC Sports Northwest or Root Sports, or somebody came in when they first started years and years and years yeah. ago. When they first started the idea of, because they needed content in the day, during the day, in the morning, during the day. Yeah. 
of wanting to film sports radio shows like they do it all now it's all over the place you just mentioned patrick yeah and people do it eyes and everybody yep. and colin coward and everything before the, any of that was happening and it was the idea was first being floated at least locally they came to me they came to the station so we want to can we do mitch's morning show with all the cameras they wanted to put all these cameras in right. the studio that go, mm, that's right mm. and the lights are it's distracting uh, and they wanted yeah. to simulcast the show while we were doing it and no. How did that go over? Was <laughs> that a long conversation and long no. negotiations? No. <laughs> well, I, I think I think it got as far as where are you putting the cameras? Well, we're putting one right here. Now that's yeah. not good. The, the profile. Oh, camera, the profile. That's that's just not going to work. I right. remember running the board for you in '96, and you remember every time there was a not every time, but a lot of times there was a big sports story. They yeah. would always send a the news. The news people would always come into the sports radio station, and they'd, they'd show the meters, and you'd hear the voice. Do you remember that? For some reason, they always went to sports radio stations, and yeah. you could hear callers. And yeah. and I remember you were dead serious one time, and you said, "If if you guys if the news people come in, no profile." No, it's not happening. Well, because I, I I wanted you to be able to see anybody else that was sitting on the other <laughs> side true. of it. I, I kind of thought you were kidding at first. I didn't you want those cameras. How about serious? I'm surprised that I even let the cameras in. I don't know that they ever came in. I think you were talking oh, to the, the Tom Lee awful. to our boss about it. I have it. an awful phobia about it. <laughs> yeah. It's terrible. It is kind of a phobia with you. Pictures, too. I mean, Well, who- I've worked on it in therapy, and the truth is, oh, is, this, is this is kind of a step. Oh, good. So we're going to see if this works out at all. I like it. Well, you just missed the comment. Every- people are making fun of you left and right on the chat. No, oh. I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, I'm going to hit end end call. (laughs) That would be the end of that. All right. Uh, So Brad Brad Schrade of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Daniel Wallach, uh, an attorney on the fascinating Zion Williamson uh, situation, and the man who won the Arizona golf tournament with one club, a putter. Okay? Can't wait to hear it. So, Scott, this historic episode 92 with a studio audience via Zoom Brought to you by our partners, Daniels Broiler. The stress that the Schwartz family is under. Our favorite world-class steakhouse is itching to reopen. How can you help such a wonderful partner of mine for all these years, both on the radio and on the podcast, beyond purchasing gift cards at danielsbroiler.com for the future? Don't forget, Schwartz Brothers Baked Goods on display at all your local grocery stores. The Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage. Call 425-250-3150. You've got low interest rates, buying and refinancing opportunities. Also, some encouraging news for those of you having trouble with monthly payments. Jordan Flowers will be heard right here on episode 92. Three top 1% brokers in the Kirkland office alone. The Kirkland office of Gill Mortgage. Evergreen Gov Call, Tyler Hayes' team listening to and understanding its clients' needs for decades, responsibly growing families' money, their private wealth management division with offices along the West Coast headquartered here in Bellevue. Evergreen and its clients well positioned to be able to take advantage of some of the opportunities that are here in the market and economy. Evergreen Golf Call, a premier wealth manager in the Northwest, and Zeke's Pizza. Zeke's Pizza delivers, and I'm not just talking great Northwest-style pizza here. You're going to hear from Dan Black on this show because the boom of Zeke's door-to-door delivery with the best local craft beer selection you'll find anywhere. Download the Zeke's Pizza app. Zeke's Pizza delivers, and it's homegrown in the Northwest. Let's start episode 92 with a studio audience right now.
Unfiltered. If she's going in there to scare him, thinking that she's got an empty gun and she's pulling the trigger, why is she not clicking it? If she goes to click it thinking just, I'm going to scare the hell out of him, click it, he's dead, right? He's dead. She's arrested. She's in jail. She's going She's going down for murder. And the little kids are without parents, essentially the rest of them. That's how close we were. Unfiltered. Every guy on this show, opponent or not opponent, is on there. They're willing to sit in front of the TV and go, the guy was just too good. I mean, he's got, some of these great, great players are willing to get on and just say, hey, hey, he was just too good for us, too good. They are, they are blowing smoke so far up his ass. The fact that he can't stop for a second and say something nice about Barkley or Peyton. Why? Mitch is unfiltered. All right, episode 92 is now officially underway. We do have a virtual studio audience on Zoom. I'm not sure how many. There may be only three people there, but some people are watching us and listening to us and getting the behind-the-scenes juice. That's right. When we screw up and we start all over again and I curse. <laughs> God, I suck. They, si- yeah, yeah. <laughs> they see it. It's episode 92, and that's the voice <laughs> Of Hot Shot Scott. When I was an intern at Cube 93, I remember going on a remote with a guy named Greg Valentine. Now, he was an on-air guy, and I I, I looked up to him because he had his own shift. I mean, he was, I don't know. I think I remember Greg Valentine. Yeah, 12 to 3. Or he was a yeah. good, solid radio guy. Yeah. By the way, the name of a pro wrestler was Greg Valentine. Always confused me. But anyway, and I'm on a, one of my first remotes. I'm setting up the posters or whatever I had to do. Yeah. He sits down. He does like a 60-second commercial, which I thought was great. Just live, just boom. Turns as soon as it's over, he just goes, God, I effing suck. <laughs> he just stands up and kicks his chair over and walks away. I'm like, wow, I thought that was actually pretty good. But, but he was on live, he wasn't redoing it. No, he did it live and he was so mad at himself. And I completely thought he nailed it. So radio people are mm. tough on themselves. Should we restart this show or are we okay so far? Well, we should restart from episode 43 when I started, probably. By the <laughs> way, we should mention that because we mentioned it on the P episodes. Ladies and gentlemen, the man who has proclaimed yes. that he is now second. On the all-time Mitch Unfiltered list for appearances. Yep. You have now, you believe... I think so, You yeah. can give yourself an applause. Go Thank ahead. you very much. You now believe that you have surpassed Jason Hamilton. Are you including P episodes or just the regular episodes? I don't know what I'm including. I just know we've done 92. Yeah. I, I started on... No, we've done 91. 91. We're doing 92 now. Yeah. You might not make it to Yeah, 91. I don't know. Maybe I'm not second yet. <laughs> I don't know. We'll keep going here. But I started on 43, so I don't know. I can't do math. But yeah, I think I've done more than Hamilton. I was the new guy. Who knew? When was the last time that we did a show where the naming rights were like the easiest thing going? Uh, I don't think we've done one since I've been here. I mean, I'm sure it was easy with 23, right? Oh, well, like 80, Jerry Rice. I'm sure we've done some when you were here. That were really easy to come up with. Jerry Rice would be easy, but we do have a lot of Seattle fans, so with large in, it was a little... Well, we can go episode Brandon Meebane, if you'd like. Had one of my favorite plays in Super Bowl Forty Eight. I gotta say, that kind of went under the radar. Really? Yeah, I love Brandon Meebane. Well, what was the play? It was, I think it was a like a swing pass, and the guy kind of stopped to cut back, and Meebane was just on a line the whole time, and the poor back didn't see him coming, and yeah. as he cut, he just absolutely laid him worthy out. enough of a mitch unfiltered episode to be named after him well you've only named one so far so I, i'm gonna say no okay we can go episode albert hainsworth <laughs> we could go is that patriots episode, i don't know albert hainsworth we could go a- episode elvis doomerville or episode Haloti nada we could go episode richard seymour we could go episode 
James Harrison of the Pittsburgh Steelers, who wore 92 for a long time. He was for good. our hockey fans out there, Hotshot, we could go episode Rick Tockett. Not doing much for me. And then we get to the two main ones. Oh, I thought you said there was one. Well, there's one that stands alone. Okay. I mean, the, the one that we're going to name it after is probably the greatest defensive lineman of all time, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. You I might mean, be right. You, we're not calling Lawrence Taylor an offense, a defensive lineman, right? He's a linebacker. Outside linebacker. Outside linebacker. linebacker yeah. Edge guy. Uh, Michael Strahan mm. wore 92, Hall of Famer 2014, seven-time Pro Bowler. He's good. I think under normal circumstances, he would be right in the mix. I think he's the all-time, at least single-season, sack guy. I think if the other guy wasn't around to take all of the limelight away, I think Strahan would be an easy choice in one of these. If you like Strahan, I don't know if you, you like Strahan. He's become, I'm just he's jealous become of him. bigger in his non-football days than he was ever in his football days. Who knew he's the greatest broadcaster of all time? He any, is the greatest broadcaster. Any job that's open in broadcasting, Strahan gets it. I mean, he's everywhere. He hosts this. He hosts this. I think he's doing the, the daily. What's the show with Kelly Ripa? Whatever that is. I mean, no, he doesn't do that. Or he does a show like that. He does one in the morning. Yeah, but the Kelly Ripa, that's uh, Ryan Seacrest, man. Well, it's that kind of cockamamie <laughs> show. You know, those morning talk shows. I don't know who watches those, by the way. <laughs> Come on. No way. <laughs> Seacrest and Kelly Ripa. Oh, I watch them and then I watch The View on board. Oh, oh God, sure. Boring. Sure. All yeah. Right, so it's not going to be Strahan. It's going to be 13-time Pro Bowler, 13-time Pro Bowler, eight-time All-Pro, Pro Football Hall of Fame. Very sad that he's not with us any longer. Yeah. Reggie White wore number 92. Everyone remembers that one. I don't, I don't know who the O-lineman was, but he tossed one O-lineman. He just, I mean, he just, he would throw that, that forearm, and he would knock down 300-pound linemen like it was me. Like we took Brett and put Brett and pads out there and said, Reggie, try to get through Brett. I mean, he would knock these 300-pound men down like it was nothing. No one was ever better. First with the Philadelphia Eagles and then with Mike Holmgren. That's right, yeah. Of the Green Bay Packers. I, I would think that episode 92, if we want to do it seriously, is a no-brainer. Yep, no-brainer. Which brings us to the top story since we last visited. Oh, yeah. It's crazy how that hit right after we got off the air, like the next day. I know. Can't win. Seahawks fans just can't win. Ladies and gentlemen, Quentin Dunbar. He is, as we record this, out of jail. Did I see that today? That he yes. is posted posted bail, out on bail. Both he and DeAndre Baker are out on bond after appearing in front of a judge Sunday during a hearing on Zoom, as a matter of fact. So, okay, yes, so take a, take me through your emotions when you heard about the story. And why were you not the first guy to break it to me? Normally, you're the first guy to break these things to me. I wasn't the first? Well, no. I, I waited like a little bit. And then, and then I texted <laughs> you, and then you threw it on Twitter. Me shitting on Trey Flowers for no reason on Twitter. Thank you for that, by the way. I did? You, you oh, tweeted yeah. out my personal text. Yeah. So be careful what you send me. Careful what you what? send me. I thought me. that that was exactly what you would say on, on no, Mitch Unfiltered. I, I don't think I would. I mean, Trey Flowers didn't do anything to anybody. Next thing you know, I'm killing him on Twitter. You've killed him on, on this show. Well, he doesn't We've listen all killed to this. him. He doesn't listen to this. Poor oh, Trey you're didn't. saying he saw, he saw the Twitter tweet, but he doesn't listen to this. I don't know if he saw it, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, Another year... Is that what you said? Another year of Trey Flowers. Another year of Trey Flowers, it looks like. Although, like you said, Dunbar's lawyer is adamant oh that this is all poppycock, hullabaloo. I don't know. It's nonsense. So let me get this straight. On Wednesday night, he's at this party. There's an armed robbery. It's a gambling party. 71 grand, 72 grand of... Wa By the way, lots of people with nice watches there. Did you notice that? Yeah. There's a few Rolexes there. Uh, there's a lot of nice watches that got stolen. Um, there's an armed robbery. And then, did you hear this? The next morning, 
He's on a conf- on a Zoom conference call like we are right now. He's on a Zoom conference call like five hours later with the Seattle media, his introductory press conference with the Seattle Seahawks. Did you know that? No, I didn't know Literally that part. Literally, oh he's at a party at 2 o'clock in the morning in an armed robbery, and he's being accused. Yeah. And, and there's like a warrant out for his arrest, all while he's doing, uh, oh, it's I'm so thrilled to be with Pete Carroll and the Seahawks, <laughs> and I, I, I'm, I'm really, this is going to be great. I mean, all while he's doing that, all this else is going on five hours earlier. What's what does your gut tell you about this? God, my gut has changed as it's gone along. Has your gut changed as it's gone along? Well, I'm I'm sort of falling under the spell of his lawyer. I'm I'm, I'm hopefully should we? The Seahawks fan in me wants to. I mean, in his why would he partake in something like this? Doesn't what's the minimum salary in the NFL? I don't know what he makes six hundred grand a year. The store, as the story goes, he and the other guy Baker. Yep. Lost $70,000 two nights earlier in a similar gambling party. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah. that okay. if, you read the, if you read the whole, all the legalese, if you read the, the fine, uh, fine script of the legalese, you'll see, you'll see a little bit of description of what happened. But apparently he and Baker lost $70,000 in some gambling, some gambling party so two days earlier. Potentially motive, I guess. Okay. Potentially. Potentially. Yeah. Uh, he gets... He gets arrested, or he, there's a warrant out for his arrest. The, this other attorney comes in and just calls. I mean, he just calls the Miramar Police Department. Right. Every bad word in the book. Yep. Worst police work I've ever seen. Today, our client Quentin Dunbar voluntarily surrendered at the Broward County Jail pursuant to a bogus arrest warrant based solely on uncorroborated witness statements that have since been recanted. As I write this, an innocent man sits in jail facing charges that hold no water. This is an attorney. Yeah. Uh, They made a mistake relying on five bad witnesses who have since not only provided me with new five new stories, but then they went ahead and they provided another five stories to the other attorney. It is my understanding. I did everything within my power to convince the Miramar Police Department to undig their heels and to realize they made a mistake. He went he went on to say that he surprised that the Miramar Police Department didn't tag the players team. He, he's mad that they keep tweeting out and tagging the Seahawks all of this stuff. Oh, time. yeah, yeah, yeah. He thinks it's unprofessional. He thinks that they're running a scam. It's a joke. <laughs> oh, gotcha. It's a bogus investigation. Everybody knows that my client didn't have anything to do with his... I, so now I, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. I have no idea either. I just know I want this guy to defend me if I That's ever get in the trouble. Problem. Oh, you want this guy to defend <laughs> Yeah, he's all he's well, all Why don't you wait on that? Okay, all right. <laughs> I'll wait. <laughs> I won't commit my crime I have crime absolutely yet. no... What's your inclination? It's it's a, You've heard of that. He said, she said. It's a they said versus they said. Yeah. What's your inclination? My inclination is it's complete bullcrap at first. At first, when I first read it, I was like, why, why would anyone who makes oh, that... Oh, God, see, I went the other way. Okay. I was like, why would anyone who makes that kind of money be involved with armed robbery. So when you first heard about it and you heard about five witnesses and these two guys and guns and so forth, you didn't believe it. Yeah, they said they were masked. So, I mean, how how great can their... No, can, I think there's one guy wearing a mask. Oh, only one guy masked? One I, of the three was wearing a mask. I not, just, not either of these two guys. I just Allegedly. thought he, he would be smart enough. He makes enough money. He doesn't need to rob somebody at a poker game. Well, so does the other guy. Poker game. You don't think the other guy was involved either, the Giants guy. He was a first-round draft choice. Yeah. Making millions of dollars. That was my that was my first take when I first heard it. Like nah, that's interesting because I, I went the exact other way. And then what happened? Well, now Did you I'm... change. I would think that you would be less convinced that he was part of it now because you're saying before you even heard from his attorney 
all the shenanigans yeah. with his attorney, you didn't believe it. I, I, I didn't really believe it. Is it the it. Seahawks fan in you that didn't believe it? Maybe. Or is it a hot shot, Scott? I just don't believe it. If, no. you, if this guy was a member of the, of the Green Bay Packers. Oh, he totally did it. <laughs> no, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like something an NFL player would do. He's not a rookie. He's not silly. He's not still running with 22-year-olds, I don't think. I don't know, young, young dumb well, adults. He's, he's like three years in the league. He's, he's like 25. 25. All right, well, damn. It just didn't sound like something an NFL player would do. And then I hear his attorney who sounds so adamant but that there's it's so, nonsense. But there was so much evidence. I didn't know about the 70 grand they lost the day before. We've there, all Forget had, that. There well, were so many people that pointed the finger straight at him. Yeah. You know, I don't think that the police department was going out to arrest these guys and, and issuing a warrant for their arrest if they weren't convinced. Now the the, the the attorney thinks that they're just grandstanding, that they're just, they were so thrilled to have a celebrity. That he, and I think he said on some interview, I've never seen a police department, a jurisdiction, so thrilled to have arrested two football players yeah. as this group. As you said you went the other way when you first heard it. Yeah, when I first heard it and I read... I don't know what you call it, the complaint or whatever it is, yeah. the, the the official legal document for from Miramar. This is before I heard from the official. Yeah, uh, yeah I, 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 don't, I, I couldn't see how he wasn't involved. He wasn't wearing a mask. There were five people or six people or a lot of people who said he was part of it. He wasn't the primary guy. He was the second guy. At first, when I when I read it, I thought, how could they how could everybody be screwing this up? How could he not be involved on some level? Are you going to tell me he was out like getting Chinese food? He wasn't even at the party? Yeah. I mean, what are the chances that he wasn't involved on some level? That was my first thought. So they escaped in exotic cars too? Yeah, like Lamborghinis. <laughs> right. and You hold somebody up for 10 grand or whatever for, and you escape in a Lamborghini yes, that's worth do. 300 yes, grand? That's what the movies do. <laughs> but then, so I was convinced that he at, at worst did it just exactly how it was described. And at best... Maybe was a part of it, but maybe not as much as it originally seemed. That was my original okay. thought. But as I started hearing from this attorney, and this guy just could be full of shit. He could be a total blowhard. He yeah. could be a total blowhard. Mm -hmm. I have no idea who this guy is. But when I started hearing how aggressive he was, they always said the best defense is a good offense. Yeah, sure. When I started, how, when I started seeing how aggressive this guy was, I was like, oh, my God. I mean, he is just he is just putting all of his chips in the middle. Right. He's calling them names. He's not only saying, you know, typically what happens in a high-profile case like this. The attorney says something like, my client refutes all the charges against him, yeah. is not guilty of this crime, and looks forward to his, his opportunity to... To prove his innocence. To, well, yeah. yeah it prove his innocence. You don't want to ever prove your innocence. But yeah, that's like it. Yeah. This guy is like, they're jerks. They're <laughs> right. assholes. They're My guy. They're starstruck. <laughs> they're tagging people. Right. I mean, this guy is like a, a, a character from a comic strip. Right. More than he is like a, an official attorney. So I don't know whether to take that as he's a quack or take it as this guy knows for a fact yeah. that Quentin Dunbar had nothing to do with this this crime i don't know which way to go i think it's one or the other it, either this guy is just full of just hot air and he's just coming out and being as aggressive as he can to fool people like to fool the community like you and me yeah. and to try to strong arm them into not arresting him and not putting him in jail or this guy 
I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know what to make of this guy. Have the Seahawks made a statement on this yet? Have they yeah, had there any are, comments? Yeah, it's the typical one okay. that they probably made with Jeremy. Whatever. Yeah. We're aware of the situation, and we're not going to comment anymore about it. So, if you're the Seahawks, what happens to Dunbar? Either way, I mean, is this the? Are we not going to see him as a? Seahawk? Well, I think I, I think you've got to remember one thing that I hate to be the harbinger of bad news. Oh, I, I actually love it. But go that ahead. Seahawks fans, Seahawks <laughs> fans know, and so do teams. Other teams know, but we know firsthand that. Remember one thing, that Quentin Dunbar doesn't have to be legally guilty of anything oh, for the NFL right. and Roger Goodell to hit him with a six-game, an eight-game, a full year. He could suspend Ugh. him for being at that party. Forgot Remember, I mean, that. we learned this from Jaron Reed, right? right? Jaron Reed was involved allegedly in a, disp- a domestic dispute in Bellevue. Yep. The authorities came in. It was investigated by the Bellevue police. It was investigated by the King County police. And they decided there's not enough evidence here to charge Jaron Reed with any crime. And what happened? And Goodell said, so? You're busted. Six weeks. You're done for six weeks. (laughs) So the first thing you got to remember is this isn't just uh, is he guilty or is he innocent. Right. Because if if the NFL views him as giving them a black eye, being in a bad place and and just – and just giving us bad headlines or whatever, if they see any reason the NFL, whether by law he's guilty or not, they can slap him with a suspension. So that's the first thing you got to remember. To answer your question, I think the Seahawks just have to let this play out. Here's his contract situation. He's got one year left on the contract, which makes this the most surprising thing because he was in line. He's a good year away from being an $18 million a year ball player. Right. From a huge, huge... You got to remember... This guy was a, a wide receiver. He was undrafted right. out of Florida. The other guy in this was a first-round draft choice. This guy was under. This guy had no NFL career, and then the Redskins in, like, the only good thing that they've done in, like, 25 years, yeah. they said, hey, let's see what he looks like as a corner. And bam. It clicked. It clicked. Yeah. And now he's one year away. He was ranked by Pro Football Focus, for whatever that's worth, as the second-best corner in the entire NFL. So he's one year away. He's supposed to make $3.4 million this year, final year of his contract. He's one year away, one good year for the Seahawks away from being a franchise tag type of player, a guy who can go out in the open market and get $15, $18 million a year. I mean, just a huge contract. He's one year away from like a five-year, $100 million, $80 million contract. Right. I mean, and, and look what he does. So I think the answer, the lo- this is a long-winded answer. I think the answer for the Seahawks is let's see what materializes. Let's see. I think the most encouraging bit of news, if you believe it, I know I'm, I'm going all over the no, place right. here. I think the most encouraging part of the news for me okay. as kind of the son of an attorney is. I'm the son of a plumber. Son of a plumber. Like Dusty Rhodes. You're a son of a bitch. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Uh, Rest in peace, Mom. We love you, Mom. <laughs> Didn't mean it. Crap. I think I think I that <laughs> I think that the most encouraging piece of news is that the and this is what I wanted to talk to the Miami attorney about. If I can get him on 92P, I will, or 93. I have a feeling he'll do it. <laughs> we'll get him. Yeah. He said at first he said we have spoken. We have spoken on behalf of Quentin Dunbar to five or six witnesses that were at the party who say that he did nothing wrong. Right. Okay? That, to me, didn't hold a lot of water. Okay. 
because he could be making that up. It's he just could hearsay. be lying. I don't know. Did he? Did he tell six? Did he get six people that love Quentin Dunbar? Hey, can you help us out here? Oh, I see. I mean, what who knows? Yeah. Who knows how okay. they were coerced? Or, but then on Saturday, he claimed he spoke to the five people. He got statements from the five people that the Miramar Police Department used as the witnesses to warn an arrest. Oh, okay. That's a little He's different. saying those five people, I just read it to you, those five that they used have now spoken to him and said, and recanted everything they said to the police. So that's the most, enc- if that's true, yeah. that's like the most encouraging thing that I could find. What's in it for the police department to do that if they talk to these five people? Do you think the police department was coercing these people to give their, no, it's just, yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. It's crazy. It's my hometown, close to my hometown. I know Well, that. I did tweet out, okay. South, South Florida guys. Going back to your original them. question, the Seahawks can cut him, Ugh. and there's no dead money. There's no consequences. Okay. They get all of his money back to use in the salary cap. So he's got a $3.4 million salary cap number. If they decide to cut him because they see, hey, the NFL is going to suspend him, he's guilty, he's going to jail, whatever. Yeah. They can cut him, and they'd have $3.4 million to sign whoever you want, Jadevian Clowney. I want him they to, could save the $3.4 million. I want him to saying. play. So do I. I, want, I mean, this seems like the perfect Pete Carroll, John Schneider guy, doesn't it? Well... I mean, just like, you know, he was a receiver. He was undrafted. Yeah. He's got something to prove. This just felt perfect. I really wanted to see him as a Seahawk. I look at it a different way. The reason I'm really heartbroken. I mean, we've talked about this before. The Seahawks were a lousy defense last year. Right. They were a lousy defense last year. Yep. They needed to improve. If they didn't improve their defense, then they're not going, no matter how superhuman number three is, they're not winning any Super Bowl with that defense. And here was a guy who came in that they got for relatively cheap, who apparently is really, really good, right? and he plays the exact position on the field that might have been the weakest position for the Seahawks. So Ugh. everything that you just said is true yeah. about how he looks like a Pete Carroll guy, whatever. I don't look at it. I just say, okay, a really bad defense's worst link was probably the right corner. I hate to do it, Trey. Right, right, right. Sorry. I'll do it. I hate to do it. He doesn't get it right. He didn't do anything wrong to anyone, Trey. <laughs> I think it was probably the worst yeah. single link. Now, I know the defensive line didn't get the pressure and all that stuff, but Trey Flowers was not good on that right corner. Here's a guy who plays right corner and can waltz right into that job and immediately make a bad defense better. Yep. That's what really screws the... And then... And then I'm saying, are, are the Seahawks the only... Doesn't it feel like the yes. Seahawks are the only team that the, has to go through this every single year with somebody? I was going to ask you, if you were to go to every fan base in the NFL... They'd all say the same thing. They would thing. all say the same yeah, thing. Yeah, of course. I mean, I did see a Washington Redskins player who just got a DUI, a Buffalo Bill player got a DUI. So maybe every every fan base would say, every year there's something. I mean, what do the Raider fans feel, by the way? But with, with, all, with all due respect to DUIs... Yeah. Armed robbery. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's That's... That's pretty bad. Minimum 10 years for each count. Ugh. Four counts. Yeah. 40 years unless the prosecution decides, the district attorney's office decides, we're going to look for something lesser. But it's a minimum. If they don't, if the district attorney says, we want to prosecute, we want to try this guy, and we want him punished to the full extent of the law, then the minute, and, and he's found guilty of any of these charges, it's 10 years per charge. Ugh. 10 years minimum per charge. Minimum. Wow. So 
I would. He's he's going to jail. He's if he if he's guilty, and we all hope he's not. Yeah. He's going to jail. I would tell the judge, look, this guy's going to make a hundred million dollars soon. Let's let him out and earn some money, and then he can have some restitution. What are we putting him away for? He could restitution. Get him out. Any grand, he could write a check. He should be able to write a check right now. <laughs> get he's him out. Three point four million. Let him pay taxes. He's going to make a lot of money. What are we putting him in a cell for? That's what I would tell the judge. All right, before we finish up the first segment, which is all about Quentin Dunbar, and that's a that's a lousy. The day that we're recording this is the Sunday of the final two installments of the Last Dance, Chicago Bulls. What are we gonna do next? What are we gonna do next? We're gonna watch golf. We, that's right, NASCAR too. NASCAR's back. We're gonna watch golf. How have you enjoyed the series? Are you ready for it to end? You're probably not ready for it to end. Of course not. I'm loving it. I'm not ready for it to end. You and I had a conversation that I'd like to revisit. We had a conversation on 91P about Michael Jordan, and I asked you, and I want you to either to rephrase or rethink your your answer. I asked you how you feel Michael Jordan is coming across. Two different questions. Yep. When you when you look at the old vintage footage of him in locker rooms and pressing the buttons and getting in fights with Steve Kerr and all the, the stuff with the Dream Team, when you see the vintage footage of him as a player, how do you feel he comes across? And then second question is with his his interview, his his present day interview sitting in the chair in his house, how do you feel? he comes across in that situation as well. Well, I told you that if I were on the jury, I'd be kicked off because I'm in the bag can't for Michael be. Jordan. I, I, I can't be impartial about him just because I love him. But I think he is coming across a little likable back in the day. But I'm wondering, we talked about, would they have gotten to where they got if he were just a, a nice A little likable or a little, a little dislikable? No, a little unlikable. Unlikable. Unlikable back in the day. But they seem to enjoy those celebrations. They seem to enjoy the champagne and the championships and the parades and... You know, would they have gotten there if he wasn't a bit of an a-hole and if he didn't push them the way he pushed them? Okay, that's the vintage footage. That's the vintage footage. How do you think he fe- – how are you feeling about him with his present date? What is he, about a 55-year-old man? He's probably, I would say 55. I think he's a little older than me. He's 21 and 84, so yeah, maybe 55, 56. I think he comes across arrogant. I think he comes across self-centered, but I'd still be not allowed to be on the jury because I'm in the bag for him, and I, and I like him. And I, I know what he went through, and I know what he gave to that organization – and the fact that he's the best basketball player who ever lived, yeah, he can be a little self-centered. What do I care? He should be. I probably, I'd, I'd probably be a nightmare if I was him, I mean, being the greatest player who ever lived. I was a little all over the board when we talked about this in 91P, so I thought I could be a little bit more succinct this time around. Okay. I'll try anyway. I think it's two questions, and I have two answers, two different answers for the two questions. Let's start with the, the tape, the recordings, the, the, the footage that we're seeing for the first time. I have no I really have no problem with anything that I've seen. Now, I don't know what we haven't seen. Right. And this is all his stuff and this is kind of his creation and he's you know, this is not a, a documentary. This is kind of a biography. I mean, he's doing all of this. This is authorized instead yeah, of unauthorized. Is <laughs> this is him. Yeah. This isn't a this isn't an objective look at Michael Jordan. Correct. This is Michael Jordan's look at Michael Jordan. He had control of the video, he has control of the production. Yeah. He's kind of the executive producer. This is his world, so he's doing so I don't know what we're not seeing, but based on what I've seen, I had absolutely no problem with it. And I know you're going to find this maybe suffocating, but I think if you if you if you hear me out, maybe you'll accept it. Okay. I kind of understand. I kind of get it from my from my experiences on a much 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 smaller. It's weird that you say that because I was walking my dog and I had an epiphany. 
And you were a little, you know, you were like, well, you know, he was pretty tough on people. And I was like, wait a minute. Didn't the guy that I used to run the board for also have a pretty high standard? And did- when are you talking about 91P? What well, I what I said? Yeah, what you said. You know, we were. I said the same thing. Well, I said I have no problem with him. But being. I was thinking you you were kind of that way too. <laughs> what I was going to say is, and you know, my world is this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I'm not comparing myself to Michael. No, I Jordan, understand. Yeah, yeah. But I know what it's like to feel like you have these enormous expectations of yourself, and and you you can hit the button and stop me. Because you you were back in those days, you remember me in those days, yep. and, and maybe if you tell if you think I'm not being fair, you stop me. You have all the power to stop me. But I remember for those 20 years what it was like trying to do a show that was. I wanted that show to be different than all. I didn't want it to be a typical sports show. With all due respect, and all those other guys did great, and they're doing great, I'm sure. I wanted our show to stand out. That morning show. And I put immense pressure on myself, and it was part of my downfall, actually. I, I put enormous pressure on myself to be better than everybody else. The show had to be more creative. The guests had to be better. The interviews had to be better. The contests had to be better. The creative ideas had to be better. The packaging had to be better. I didn't want to be just a show. It was important that we were the best, not just on KJR. I wanted to be the best I want to be better than anybody in Philadelphia or New York. I wanted our morning show yep. to stand out. And I expected of myself that level of kind of perfection. And the people around you, too, you'd say. And so what yeah. would happen is I would, you know, press buttons and I would push and I would cajole and I would challenge. And I, and I had to be an asshole every once in a while. But I felt like. There's just no way that we're going to get to where, and I don't ever felt, by the way, for the record, I don't ever feel like we ever got to where I wanted to go, but Wait, there all, was- all that asshole behavior and we still never got to we where ever, we wanted to go? we ever did. <laughs> okay, that's good but, to know. But, but I, no, I, do you understand? Do you understand it, that- It hit I, me. It hit me. That it, okay, there was so, a similarity. When I was walking my dog, I remember it hit me. There's kind of the same thing in the, when I was with you. And I I don't think, I guess where the this, this similarities are, I don't think- I was never trying to be an asshole to be an asshole. Of course, yeah. I, it was all for the show. I just wanted the show. I wanted the product to be unbelievable. Yep. And if I had to push people, I was willing to push people. And so when I sit in these chairs and I watch the Jordan and I and I hear people complaining, he was such an asshole, he was such a jerk, yeah. how he pressed our buttons. But then I hear people come back and say, I get it. I understand why we couldn't be the best. He was trying to make us be the best that we could possibly be. So I could, I don't know, it resonated with me. Yep. So that part of it, I have zero, zero issue with. Yeah, at least you understand it. I completely understand yeah. it. I completely yeah, yeah. understand it. Now, let's, let me answer the question of what does the modern-day Michael Jordan look like? And this is what I said, and I'll stand by what I said on 91P. Is this a big thing? No. Do I love Michael Jordan? Yes. Do I think he's the greatest NBA player I ever saw? Yes. Was he kind of my favorite like everybody else's? Yes. Yeah. What I'm about to say is a very small, nitpicky detail. And I'm talking about him sitting in the chair in his family room doing these interviews. With the cigar on the scotch. With the cigar. There's something that, how do I say this, that's missing. And, I mean, here is a guy who is universally regarded. Like, okay, yeah, are there some people that think that LeBron James is better? I, I guess. But right. Is there anybody, is there any athlete of our, of our lifetime 
that is more unanimously regarded, universally regarded as the greatest that ever did it, more than Michael Jordan? Muhammad Ali? Yeah, maybe. I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, every single superstar from his generation is on that show saying he was the best. Yep. He has nothing to be insecure about in the league. If there was one person, let me put it to you this way. If there's one person that had no reason to be insecure about his place professionally in his lifetime, would it not be Michael Jordan? Without question. Then why is it that Michael Jordan at age 56 can't get himself to give others credit? I mean, a little bit here and a little bit there. Scottie Pippen was a great teammate, yada, yeah, yeah. But for the most part... Clyde Drexler's name comes up. That was a weird one for me. Clyde Clyde Drexler, and that I'll get to Gary weird. Payton in a second. Yeah. Clyde Drexler never said a, a bad word about anybody. He never blew. He never talked about himself. He never portrayed himself. He was never cocky. He was a quiet, yeah. soft-spoken nice fellow, star, yeah. and he went about his business. And and, and 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 I'm not I'm not suggesting that Michael Jordan couldn't get up and, but you know. How about a compliment? How about something nice about Clyde Drexler? Well, by the way, if Jordan wasn't born, Clyde Drexler would have been the best shooting guard in the league for like 10 years. One of them. Certainly one of them, I mean, yeah. Who, yeah. who was a better shooting guard than great. Drexler? He was such great. a good player. And, and, you can't give him and, and, anything. I guess what I'm saying is 56-year-old Michael Jordan has yeah. no reason now. No one thinks that Clyde Drexler was as good as him. Yeah. Why can't he sit many years later and say, you know, Clyde was a classy, great teammate yeah, that's right. with teammate. me on the dream team. He did things the right way. I loved playing. He was a really terrific guy. And a Why can't he say those that's, things? And yeah. then, and then, okay, I'll graduate to Gary Payton because that's the one that's kind of fresh in my mind. And then we can do the three interviews. The Gary Payton thing is a, is a perfect example of what I'm trying to articulate here. And again, this isn't a big deal, whatever. Right. I don't dislike Michael Jordan for this. I'm just curious about this. Gary Payton, the quote, whatever it was that he said that Michael Jordan was looking at the, the iPad and watching yeah. the... He didn't say... I don't remember Gary Payton saying anything that could have been regarded as disrespectful towards Michael Jordan. Did he? He did when he was young. But, I'm talking about but, what, yeah, not, what he was looking at in this in this documentary. No, it didn't seem disrespectful okay. at all. No. He said, they switched me on him, and I tried to play him tough, and I think I slowed him down a little, whatever. Yep. And then Michael Jordan's reaction to that was the laugh. The maniacal laughter. The, the, the maniacal laugh and refusal. It, not, not only refusal to give Gary Payton any credit, just like the dismissive yep. nature. That's right. Okay, what what would it have hurt? How would anybody have regarded Michael Jordan at 56 or 55 worse? Would anybody have regarded him worse had he said the following? You know, Gary Payton, man, that dude was a great defender. He was defensive player of the year, and he was tough. And when they switched him on me, he got into my, you know, I, I had the ultimate confidence that I was going to take care of him like anybody else. But that guy was a tough-minded, really terrific all-star player. What would it have hurt? Yeah. Who, would it, who would it have hurt if he had just doled out a little bit of praise to Gary Payton? Yeah, now I think but, LeBron's better. I mean, like, no one's going to say that now. It's so, well, so, what, what, what's he afraid of? I, I, but Michael <laughs> Jordan, I, for whatever reason, he seems to have a lack of ability Still. just to say, hey, yeah, he was great. He was great. I mean... Well, I don't get it. I think it's his insane. He just he can't let go. He's got to stay competitive. You hear the story about OJ Mayo going to Jordan's camp? No. 
I, I may be getting this wrong, but I think OJ Mayo, he he's he's talked about it. He played Jordan a little one on one, just kind of, I think Jordan was probably forty or so. Yeah. And I think I think OJ scored on him and Jordan kicked all the campers out and told OJ we're playing one on one. And he beat him. OJ Mayo was like the best player in the country. He was like 17 or 18. But that's Jordan's competitive. He's 40 years old and he's challenging this high school kid. He just has this insane competitiveness. You're not following me. I don't have any problem with that. Yeah. But why can't 40-year-old Michael Jordan, after he kicks OJ Mayo's ass, walk off the court after he's won and say, guy's a good guy, boy. He's a good young player. I think he feels it diminishes him somehow. Throw a bone his way. He's Michael Jordan. It diminishes him if he says Gary Payton's good. But does it? I don't think it does, but I think he probably It actually makes him more more human and more, to me, it makes him more likable. Again, O.J. Mayo, Clyde Drexler, Gary Payton, there's not one person who wouldn't say, Michael Jordan, you were the very best. That's right. How about a little... That's the difference. Just throw... Throw the dog a bone, as my mom would say. <laughs> and, and by the way, every once in a while, Jordan's Bulls beat the Sonics. Like you know, you can come out and say it; it's right. okay. Like right. it's not like it's not like the Sonics came back and beat you. You still beat them. That's right. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. It would not kill him. There's to a, give little a little bit of humility. Credit. There's yeah. a little bit of humility missing. It's not a big deal. It's just something that kind of rubs me the wrong way when I watch the the updated interviews. Anyway, we've got three three guests, and then we're gonna try to involve the. <laughs> The studio audience? I can't wait. I have a couple stories, too, I have to get to. Very important stuff. Oh, you do? That's not important. (laughs) (laughs) I'm dying to get this one out. Where would Mitch Unfiltered be without partners like Daniel's Broiler? Not very far is the answer. And you don't need me to tell you that we must support local businesses and families like the Schwartz family during these times. It's vital. The same family that owns and operates Daniel's also has Schwartz Brothers Bakery and Brenner Brothers Bakery, known since 1903 for their traditional bagels and rye bread. Founded in 1973 to make pies and other desserts for their restaurants, Schwartz Brothers Bakery now offers a delicious selection of fresh breads, bagels, dinner rolls, hamburger hot dog buns, as well as pastries like cinnamon rolls and coffee cake and Danish, and so much more at QFC, Fred Meyer, Safeway, Albertsons, Metropolitan Market, PCC, and other local supermarkets. For a limited time, you can also find Schwartz Brothers Bakery, Frosted Shortbread Cookies, and Lemon Bars at select Costco warehouses. Schwartz Brothers and Brenner Brothers, proud to continue to provide the community with bread and essential baked goods during these challenging times. It allows them to keep many of their team members employed and look forward to the day when Daniel's Broiler locations can reopen and those valuable team members can come back to work. Daniel's Broiler, Schwartz Brothers Bakery, and Brenner Brothers Bakery, staples of the Northwest community forever. Unfiltered. Hole one, 379 yards. That's a straight line shot, or where's the flag? Let's see. Do we have one club lining up on the tee? I sure do. As he does a practice swing. All this with a putter. About how many yards would you say that went out? It's only about, it's going to be over a little bit 100. yards straight out. Episode 92 and the return of the PGA Tour seems to be right around the corner, which is exciting to many of us golf fans. I was reading Gabe Garcia's article about a little amateur event last weekend in Chandler, Arizona, and I figured we needed to invite the D-flight winner and his buddy 
on Mitch Unfiltered, and you're going to understand why in a moment. So without further ado, here are my new friends, Anthony Griggs and his wingman, Larry Vinson. Hi, guys. Hi, how you doing? Hey, Mitch. Nice to have you on. Anthony, you're an Army veteran. You're about to turn 61. By the way, happy birthday in advance. And you and you Thank won you. and you won the little one round tournament the other day. Tell everybody in our audience what you shot. I shot an eighty three, but it ended up being an eighty four. I guess because of some of the math or indexing that they that uh, they do. Oh, but I really I shot an eighty three. Okay, you shot an eighty three. Now, Larry, I do a podcast. We talk to a lot of great athletes and people with great stories. Our audience right now is saying, "Why in the world?" Would Mitch be interviewing a 60-year-old man who shot 83 in a golf tournament? Right, Larry? That's what they're asking right now. Why in the world are these two guys on? Tell everybody the answer to that question, Larry. The answer to that question, uh, Mitch, is that he shot this 83 with just a putter only. (laughs) A putter only. (laughs) Only a putter. (laughs) No. Now, Anthony, is this true? Are these rumors true? Or is this some sort of practical joke that you're playing on the entire country right now? Uh, No, no rumor. It's actually fact. It is true. Go back. Go back in time. What happened? uh, When did you start playing with a putter? Do you only play with a putter all the time? Give us the whole story. Give us the rundown, Anthony. Okay, the story is um, we was at Hillcrest. We had just finished up a tournament uh, that we were playing. After the... uh, tournament everybody was around you know laughing and joking and uh you know drinking and talking about our bad shots and everything like that and this young lady stood up and out of all that noise she stood up and she told everybody it got real quiet and she said anthony is going to beat you all in a way that you've never seen before (laughs) now at (laughs) at that time i had no idea what she was talking about because uh-huh. I was playing with 14 clubs like every, like everybody else. Okay, a few months down the road, I came in after another tournament we played and I came in and I was sort of uh, complaining. I said, man, this is this is a boring game. I'm fairway, I'm greens and everybody chasing balls everywhere. I said, this is a boring game. <laughs> Anthony, let me jump in here and ask you, <laughs> let me ask you, what kind of a player, because our audience probably wants to know, with 14 clubs, honestly now, what kind of a player were you when you were playing with a full set and how long have you been playing since you were a little boy? What's your experience with the game? No, I started late in life uh, playing golf and uh, taught myself everything. I never had an instructor or anything like that. I just went out there and do like every other beginner and start hitting a bucket of balls and started playing. How old were you? Uh, I had to be around in my 40s, okay. late 40s. So, so you're an athlete. You, you taught yourself the game. And what was your handicap, would you say, at the time of your, at this point in the story when you're, you're finding the game boring, fairways and greens? By the way, Anthony, when I go out and I hit fairways and greens, I don't find that very boring. I, 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 like, I like that. <laughs> but go ahead. Neither do I, man. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, uh, it tends to get boring when you're doing, to me, when you're doing the same thing, you know, just fairway greens, and it's like there's no challenge. It's, to me, it's like it was no challenge there. What, what, what was your handicap? Plus? Were you a plus? Yes, I was a plus. What was your best round, your best score with 14 clubs? 
Uh, 63. Okay, 63. All right, so now pick up the story. I'm sorry I interrupted. You're finding the game boring because you're hitting fairways, you're hitting greens, and you're making birdies. <laughs> Sounds really, really right. boring to me. And so what did you do? <laughs> Tell everybody what you did. Well, after the second time I came in, uh, well, the first time I wasn't complaining, uh, it felt like I was anointed to do something out of the ordinary when she stood up and made that comment. Right. But I really didn't pay no attention to it. But I came in again, and I was complaining. And a guy by the name of J.J. Colebrook was sitting at the table, and he was writing. And he never looked up. All he said was, if you want to make it more difficult, play with a putter. Not one club. Now, play like, with a putter. It was a putter no, specific. Play with a putter. Play with a putter. Play with a putter. Okay. And I'm like everybody else. What are you talking about? And they said, no, no way I'd love to sit here and play with a putter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, man, that's that's unheard of, you know, play with a putter. But, uh, you know, I guess somehow it stuck in the back of my mind because I went out and I was on the driving range and I was hitting, you know, with the regular 14 clubs. I was hitting with the 14 clubs. And I guess that thought was just, it was just there. And I I said, well, let me go and try to hit my, my putter. So I put out my Scotty Cameron and I started hitting it. Yeah. And the ball started, you know, it was just going straight. It just kept going straight. I said, wait a minute. I can do this. <laughs> and uh, once I told myself I can do it, I, I, I apparently I've, I've accomplished uh, a little bit. You know, it's, it's a whole new level of the game when you're playing with a putter. Okay, but, but Anthony... Larry, Larry, jump in here. The man, you, you, you call your, you call yourself Anthony's caddy, and I want to know what kind of a caddy walks around with one club. That's the easiest caddying job. Hey, what do you think I should hit here? Uh, let's take a look at this. Um, I think putter. I think putter would be good here. Okay. Now, Mitch, greatest caddy in the world. Now, Mitch, that's what most people think. But um, I have watched Anthony long enough to know what he can do, how he does it, and the whole works. Oh. So. My job is, my job is, let's say we're on a par three and it's 175 yards. I will look at Anthony and say, Anthony, I want you to use your seven iron swing. Oh. And that's what he does. Oh, I see. I see. So there's a lot of talent in the caddy. I see what you're saying. What do you do? What do you what do you tell him when he gets into a greenside bunker, or or worse yet, a fairway bunker? Do you then do you then look for a new client, Larry? Look for another player to caddy for? (laughs) (laughs) No, sir. Um, He has he he basically has two choices, and he can turn that he can turn his putter uh, to the toe and bring it out of a bunker, or he can keep it flat. But it just depends on how much sand is in that bunker, and I will tell him which way he needs to turn that putter. Anthony, and he brings it out. Anthony, what kind of an adjustment did you need to make? All kidding aside, when you start hitting putters off the fairway and trying to, I guess, take a little divot, or putters from a, from a bunker, that must have taken a little bit of time to adjust and learn how to manipulate those shots. No, it, it was... Uh, I just feel, you know, I'm a field golfer. You know, if I if if I see it and Larry and I discuss which club, uh, which swing I should use, then that's that's it. I don't have to adjust to manipulate anything. I just that's in my mind, and that's what I that's what I swing. If he say pitching wedge swing, it's going to be a pitching wedge swing. And the distance controls that I have to have have to be almost, you know, it's just amazing the distance control that I have to have. Mm. 
Mitch, can I give you a quick story? Sure, love it. Um, we were playing in a tournament, and we were on. Uh, we were playing at Lone Tree. Mr. Griggs, I, I call him Mr. Griggs, but anyway, uh, Anthony was behind this tree. He was. We were. We were about oh, a hundred and ninety. Let's say about a hundred and ninety yards out from the from the green. But his ball was behind this tree. But he was back about thirty yards, thirty forty yards. Uh huh. And so he looks at me and said, Larry, what are we going to do? I said, I said, Mr. Griggs, I said, Mr. Griggs, I want you to take that ball over that tree as though we're on a par three. Okay. Yep. He took it over the tree and landed at about six feet from the pin. <laughs> the guys, the guys that were playing with us, they could not believe what they just saw. Come on, 190 <laughs> yards off the ground. I don't, are you guys pulling? I think you guys are pulling our legs. I think this is all a conspiracy here. Anthony, tell us that the joke is on us, Anthony. Come on. No, the joke is not on you. That's actually true. I can take a ball over a 40, 50, 60 foot tree if I have to. Wow. It's it, off the fairway off the deck of the fairway, uh, there was a par five we was coming into, and I had two palm trees that was dead in the middle of the fairway. And the only way to get over to the green was to take it over the trees. And I took it off, popped it off the fairway over those trees and landed it right in front of the green. <laughs> how 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 long are the golf course? Are you not you're not playing from the tips, Anthony? Are you? I mean, you're not playing seven thousand yard golf courses, or are you playing those? I, I play seven thousand four hundred yard courses with just a putter. <laughs> and and we had a, we had a disaster on our hands not too long ago. I don't know when this was, but something happened to the putter. Tell everybody the story of that, Anthony. Well, that was with my Scotty Cameron when I first started. Um, I had played a couple of rounds with it, but on this particular day, it was me and three other guys. We was finna go out and play, and I was practicing with my Scotty Cameron, and it snapped on me. Uh oh! So I told him, I said, "Yo, guys, uh, give me a minute. I'm gonna run across the street to the Goodwill and pick up a putter, and I'll be right back." So I ran over to the Goodwill, and in the bin, out of all the clubs they had in this little bin, that was the only putter that was there. It was like it was waiting on me. So I picked the putter up. <laughs> Grabbed it, ran to the cashier, paid two dollars and ninety nine cents for it. <laughs> went back. <laughs> Big spender, Anthony. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, paid two dollars and ninety nine cents for it. I went back over across the street where we was playing. Yeah, and we played from it, and we played from the tips, and I beat them all. I- I'm surprised that these putters actually last. They're not made to be hitting off the tee and, you know, fairway shots. I'm surprised you don't go through putters a lot that they don't break on you. No, this is a, it's an old Wilson Staff putter. All right. Wilson Staff putter. All right. Yep. Larry, jump in here. Larry, by the way, is from Mill Creek, Washington. I want to mention that to all of our local listeners. Larry, uh, you you caddied yes. for Anthony. You caddied for Anthony at the, uh, the famous – Pro-Am of the Scottsdale event on the PGA Tour, the Phoenix. So we used to call it the Phoenix Open. I guess it's called the, the Waste Management. Anthony's played in what, a pre-qualifier and a Pro-Am? Talk about that experience. Anthony played in the um, the Pro-Am. Okay. And uh, the this was January 2019. And the pro, the actual pro that he was playing with, his name is Stan Utley. Yeah. 
And Stan works or uh, coaches up at uh, Greyhawk in Scottsdale, Arizona. Yeah, let me step in and say. You mean 2018. 2018. Okay, that's all right. 2018. 2018. Let me step in and say for our non-golf fans, Stan Utley was a former PGA player who has become a real short game guru, a real putting guru, and he and he he tutors and he teaches a lot of the great players, a lot of the great young players on the PGA Tour. Go go ahead, Larry. Continue the story. Okay, so on, on the very first hole, on the very first hole, which was a par three, about 185 yards. Well, first of all, when we walked up to the tee box, the marshals that were standing there, they were looking and said, "What, what is this guy going to use? He doesn't have any clubs." <laughs> and so. But now, but I was carrying, I was carrying the putter. Uh-huh. I had his putter. Yeah. So when Anthony teed off, or let me back up just a second. When Stan teed off, Stan placed the ball about oh twelve, say twelve feet from the pin. Anthony tees off, and he places the ball about sixteen feet from the pin. Right. Okay. Stan walks up. And said, you guys watch my line. Watch my line. He was going to putt. So Stan walked up and putted his right. I mean, dropped it right in the cup. Right there. Right. So Anthony was the second putter. Anthony walked right up behind him. One hand putt and dropped it right in the cup. Oh, you putt Just one like hand. He puts one hand. Anthony, you putt one handed? <laughs> yes, I put one handed. <laughs> All right. They don't watch out. I'll be out there with one leg. <laughs> Larry, what happened? What happened when Stan saw Anthony get into the bunker for the first time? We were on hole number fifteen, and just to make a long story short, um, uh, Anthony ended up in the bunker just prior to the green. So Stan's ball was in the bunker. Also, Stan walks over to Anthony and he says, "Now." You have to impress me. <laughs> so Anthony climbs. Anthony Anthony climbs the, in the bunker. Anthony looks up at me. He had his putter turned to the toe, uh-huh. and he looks up at me. And I shook my head, no, meaning use the flat side. Okay. He did. When he brought the ball out, he brought it out about a foot from the pin. Okay. <laughs> now Stan Stan climbs in the bunker, and Stan brings his ball out and put it about a foot. From the pen. After they put it out, we we're walking off the green. And so I said, Hey, Stan, what was going through your mind when you saw Anthony in that bunker and brought that ball out and put it that close to the pin? Stan looked at me and said, Larry, after he did that, I knew damn well I had to get mine out. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy you know playing uh anthony playing that 16th hole i think it's the 16th hole the infamous 16th hole is is oh yes is nerve-wracking enough anthony with with 14 clubs with all those fans around you've played that 16th hole with the putter right Yes, and I hit the green, but it rolled back off the green because uh, I had a little ridge there. Well, by the way, Larry, that's not the end of the Stan Utley story. You guys ran in, or Anthony ran into Stan Utley later, uh, and Stan got excited to see Anthony. Tell that story. Yes, he did. I think this was on that Wednesday of, of the same week. And Anthony and I decided to go up to Greyhawk just to stop by and talk to Stan, you know? Yep. And so we did. And we're as we are standing there talking to Stan... Stan looks up and he says, oh, there's Bill. Well, we, I didn't know what he was talking about, but it was Bill Hawes. 
Oh. Bill Hawes. Yeah. And so Stan says, hey, Bill, this is the guy that I played with. This is the guy I was telling you about. This is the guy that plays with the potter. And, and Bill said, no way. No way. And so said, okay, Anthony, go get your putter. So he went and got his putter. They went up on the driving range. And Anthony told Bill, no, Bill says, well, how do you, how do you hit the ball? And Anthony says, well, if I want to fade it, I'll do this. If I, want it, if I want to draw it, I'll do this. And if I want to hit it straight, I'll do this. And Bill Haas says, give me that putter. Let me try it. Let me try that. So Bill takes the putter, and he swings, he swings. He could hit the ball, it was roll, but it would only roll about 40 <laughs> yards on the ground. He could not get it airborne. <laughs> he could not get it airborne. Oh. And so when they're all finished, Bill Haas looks at Anthony and says, I am a fan of yours. Oh, and Bill Haas again for our listeners who don't know. Bill Haas uh, is a, a longtime member of the PGA Tour, a winner of many many events. I think he won the playoffs one year, won the Tour Championship, hit a great shot out of the water one year ne- next to the green, and it's a great story. Larry and, and Anthony, you guys are a bright light in this otherwise uh, difficult times for all of us. Anthony, tell us what's next now that you're excited. I'm assuming you're going to tell me you're excited about the game again now that you're playing with the putter. What's your what's next on your accomplishment list what do you want what's on the bucket list what do you want to do with that putter i want to shoot consistently in the 60s with it oh that's my goal okay what are you shooting now you're shooting in the 80s obviously 83 84 somewhere in there it's around 80s but i'm in the 70s also you know i shoot rounds in the 70s but like i say it's golf it all depends on the day and conditions and all that what do you think you need to do what's the big challenge what's the hurdle to get over to get into the the 70s and 60s well most most golfers play the air they play their balls up in the air and i, I can play mines in the air but basically my game is using the contours of the golf course like hitting heels and bouncing off heels and right you know, rolling it through sand traps and stuff like that is what I'm working on. Well, good luck to you, Anthony. Larry and Anthony, Larry, Vince, and Anthony Griggs, it's really great to visit with you guys. Uh, a great story, a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. I wish both of you nothing but the best. Thank you so much. Well, thank well, you. Thank you, thank you, Mitch, for having us. Great to visit with you. Yes, thank you very much. Okay. Imagine that, playing golf for the rest of your life with one club, a putter. That's what Anthony Griggs is doing. Anthony Griggs and Larry Vincent joining us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline from Chandler, Arizona. On the phone with Jordan Flowers of the Kirkland office, the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage. I know it's a strange and scary time. Jordan, you guys are open, right? You're an essential business? Mitch, that is correct. We are an essential business, being the financial sector, housing sector, and we are all still fully operational, my entire uh, staff and team, whether we're working from home or uh, socially distancing ourselves and locking ourselves in the offices. We're all still working and serving our clients here. Opportunities for our our listeners that want to look at either purchase or refinance. I know it's uh, the last thing on a lot of people's minds right now, but for those that are thinking about it, what can they find at the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage? Opportunities are still great, both for refinancing and buying. The Fed is committed to keeping rates low throughout uh, this pandemic, as well as long after to ensure 
a full robust recovery. Definitely opportunities right now on home buying uh, as far as a decent amount of inventory hitting the market and potentially getting good deals there for anybody that currently does not own and has been thinking about it, we're happy to run uh, rent versus own calculators for you and see kind of what your tax liabilities are and also the financial benefits of owning a home, whether primary or investment property. If we're in the market or we're in the market for a refi, we should look at our numbers on our outstanding loan, our current loan. What should we be looking for? What numbers are available to us through you guys? Absolutely. I'd say anybody right now that's considering refinancing, we're taking care of uh, clients removing their mortgage insurance. We are helping people with cash out refinances to consolidate debt or do home improvements. Really anything in the high threes to low fours and above certainly would, would be of interest in taking a look at what refinance numbers look like for them right now. Jordan, what about all the people out there that are having trouble making their payments during this insanity? So with that stimulus package, the CARES Act, they are allowing customers to apply for forbearance if they qualify up to six months and then extend to 12. What they need to know, there's there's information on the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau website, the CFPB website, as well as um, they need to be reaching out to their servicers to figure out what they are eligible for if they need to. If they can make their mortgage payments, they need to keep doing that. Uh, but as a last case, solution for anybody that's hit by these times. Um, There are options for them, but they need to understand what those options are. They're not getting their debt wiped out or forgiven. It's simply moving the payments and they need to understand that. 425-250-3150. That's 425-250-3150. Jordan Flowers team, the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage. Unfiltered. Travis McMichael and his father, Greg, a former police officer, are charged with murdering 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery on February 23rd in Brunswick, Georgia. They told police they thought the young man was, quote, the suspect from the break-ins, and after seeing him here, two doors down, walking around the open construction site, they tried to make a citizen's arrest. You know, when I finally took the plunge and returned with this podcast, Mitch Unfiltered, I made a promise to myself that I would not be handcuffed to sports and would share my curiosity of the larger stories in the world with my listeners. Well, file this segment into that category. The Brunswick, Georgia shooting and killing of Ahmaud Arbery demands this country's attention in my estimation. And Brad Schrade of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and his colleagues have done just a remarkable job, I think an award deserving job in covering this tragedy. I've been reading it every single day, multiple times a day. Brad, thanks for being with us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline. We appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me, Mitch. Brad, the best place to start, I suppose, is at the beginning, especially for those in our audience that either are unaware or vaguely in tune with the story. What happened doesn't seem to be much in dispute. Why it happened seems to be everything here. Yes, Brunswick, Georgia is down on coastal Georgia. That's It's about four hours southeast of Atlanta, down near Savannah and, and the coastal uh, islands down in Georgia. It's just north of Jacksonville. First off, in late February, uh, a young man named Ahmad Arbery, he was 25, was shot and killed in, this, uh, in a suburban community outside of Brunswick. 
largely a, a kind of a local story down there um, for a couple months. The rest of the world was, um, you know, focused on the pandemic, and it just sort of it, it sort of was flying under the radar. Uh, the New York Times did a big piece in late April, and then uh, in on in early May, uh, May fifth, a video of the actual killing went viral and what it revealed to the world was a very, very striking, disturbing picture of two uh, uh, men, white men in a pickup truck shooting this African-American man who was running down a residential street. And that video uh, has gone international and has completely exploded and changed this case and brought in all kinds of issues of race, law enforcement, uh, the justice system. It has become just an explosive story that is really uh, roiling the, uh, the country and certainly Georgia and this community. Speak more about the specifics of where Ahmad was before he was shot down the home that he was walking through. Tell us a little bit more about the two guys, the, the father and son yeah. combination who chased him down and what more happened, more facts. Yes, yeah, so this is this neighborhood is called Satilla Shores. It's, it's right, on the, uh, uh, right on the coast. There's a, there's a waterway that runs beside the, um, uh, the community. It's not a huge neighborhood. It's about five streets, six streets, and it's, it's kind of self-contained. There's really only one way in and one way out. Starting last fall, uh, we've, we've sort of been learning this as, as we've been working on this story, but essentially the day of the incident, um, he was running through the neighborhood and a neighbor called 911 and it, he ran down the street and these two uh, men, uh, Gregory McMichael and Travis McMichael, father-son who lived about five doors down from a home that was under construction, grabbed their guns, got in a pick pickup truck and chased Arbery and eventually confronted him, leading to this uh, confrontation in which Travis McMichael is seen on a video with a shotgun that uh, goes off three times and kills Arbery. There's a struggle. What we have learned in the past week or two is that this little neighborhood had started last fall. Um, there, this construction site had some uh, motion detective, motion sensor cameras that were going off. And there were various people coming into this home at night. And one in particular looks like a African-American young man who... Um, was coming in at night. It caused concern for the owner. He was calling police. The man never took anything. He never caused any damage, but it was somebody coming into the property late at night. And there were several of these videos that got passed around the, the, on the neighborhood's Facebook page and on a Nextdoor app. And there had been some break-ins, uh, car thefts, uh, suspicious activity, nothing major, but the neighborhood was on edge over this. The police had been out. Again, there had been no evidence of any significant crime related to this site, but 12 days before the incident, Travis McMichael was driving up the road in his pickup truck, saw an African-American man in the front yard. It was just after dark in this house, and there was, uh, he called 911, and some neighbors came out with 
guns and they were searching for this this young African-American man that nobody knew in the neighborhood. And uh, the police came out and nobody they didn't find any anything. But there was clearly a sense in this neighborhood. And we had a story today. This was a neighborhood on edge. This had sort of uh, become you know, something they were looking out for this person. Even again, there was no evidence he had been stealing anything, causing any damage to the property. It was unnerving. Mr. Arbery's family said he liked to jog in the area. He was an avid runner and somebody who was a former football star. And really, everybody you talk to knows him, talks about how much he liked to jog. And that was one of his things. So fast forward 12 days after this incident, uh, Mr. Arbery is coming into the Satilla Shores neighborhood. He's captured on security camera video. We see this unfold. He walks up into the front yard of this construction site, walks in, um, you know, walks around back, is there for a few minutes. Again, there's no evidence that he took anything or that there was any damage done. But the neighborhood was on alert and a neighbor called 911 um, it's unclear from the surveillance or the security video from across the street, but it, it's clear that Mr. Arbery again runs down the street. It's unclear if he's jogging or if he's reacting, but his family says he was jogging in the neighborhood. This was something he did. But this set off this tragic set of events that over the next five minutes, uh, pretty much that was. They, they got the he ran down the street. Uh, Mr. McMichael, the McMichael saw him, got their guns, went chasing after him, confronted him. The struggle ensued and Mr. Arbery uh, was shot and killed. Now, one of the things, again, about this case that it was pretty much a local case for the first two months, this video exploded and all kinds of questions about why the prosecute the once this video hit. Uh, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation was called in to investigate. Within just a couple days, the McMichaels were charged with felony murder and aggravated assault. And the video has raised questions about how could this happen? And all of these prosecutors and police down in this local jurisdiction see this as anything but a, a crime. And so it has just... Um, it's created all kinds of questions about this judicial yeah. circuit, the DAs down there, the police, what they were doing. How does this go two months and nobody is charged? Well, what was the original determination before, as in your words, the video came out and this thing exploded? What was the original uh, legal well, determination? The, well, I mean, basically, the, the, the local DA, uh, Jackie Johnson, Another attorney general from a neighboring district, George Barnhill, he had the case for about a month, month and a half. His determination was that there was no crime, that this was basically self-defense or, or you know, just that they, yeah. that they were, the McMichaels didn't do anything wrong. And then the video, anybody that sees the video, uh, you know, many people that have seen the video question that. And, and it, the governor yeah. has come out and talked about how it, the State Attorney General, the President. I mean, it has been a, you know, anybody that sees that video, it's very, very disturbing. Brad, uh, what you haven't mentioned yet, which is a, a major part of the story, is the occupation, or at least the former occupation of the McMichael father, which might, yeah. might, might or might not explain why it was handled the way it was originally before the video came about. Yes. 
Gregory McMichael, the father in this case, he was a longtime law enforcement official in this community, uh, Glenn County, Brunswick area. Uh, Mr. McMichael last year retired from the local district attorney's office, Jackie Johnson, which is one of the reasons she gave for recusing herself. He was a former Glenn County police officer. They were the agency that, uh, you know, investigated the case. Another kind of twist that we learned and reported on Friday mentioned the fact that there had been all these kind of suspicions and, uh, you know, this person coming into the neighborhood and various calls for service, trespassing, you know, that kind of thing. It last December, after one of the uh, construction site property owners' cameras pinged, and he sent it to the police, a few days after that, the, one of the Glenn County police officers texted him back and basically said, hey, I've, you know, your neighbor, Gregory McMichael, is a retired law enforcement officer and a uh, former investigator with the district attorney's office. He said he'd be happy to check day or night on the if your camera goes off. The property owner who lived a couple hours away never, said he never made that call to McMichael. He didn't know McMichael. Um, he had met the son one time, you know, in passing when he was installing a dock but didn't really know the McMichaels and didn't turn to them. But what this has injected into this is what was this relationship with the law enforcement? Why is a sworn officer sending a, a case or sending a neighbor to a retired law enforcement officer if there's a need for a police call? It's just added to the kind of questions about why this happened, what, what was the relationship there, and why wasn't an outside police agency brought in long before that video hit. And to underscore, Brad, what you just said, the elder McMichael, if I'm reading your work correctly, he had been stripped of his power to arrest on a few occasions in the past and retired four months after a suspension of his law enforcement certificate. Is that right? There had been an issue where he had not taken some training, firearms training, and had had some issues with POST, which is the police certification agency. The Washington Post actually reported that last week. I think the larger question is really this relationship with the police and law enforcement. It's And just as one other kind of detail in this, this DA and this police, this is not the first time they've been accused of of um, and been faced questions about favoritism towards police officers. Ah. We've been investigating this DA and this police department for years. There was there was a controversial police shooting ten years ago that the DA was later accused of tilting the grand jury and, and um, you know her her own prosecutors in the office. Four of them spoke out publicly saying that you know this was prosecutorial misconduct and the way that that case was handled was not done properly. Two Glenn County police officers who shot and killed a woman who was unarmed. So, I mean, there's just, there've been a lot of questions over the years and, and many people in that part of the state and, uh, you know, Georgia concerned and raising questions about how justice is handled there. And this case has just reignited and blown this, all of those, it magnified all of those questions now on a 
national and in some ways international level. Brad, a couple of last questions. You've been terrific and your work has been exemplary. All of you guys have done an unbelievable job, I think, in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I want to go back to the McMichaels. As you point out, Ahmad Arbery goes into a construction house, looks around. We've all, many of us have seen the video, the surveillance video of that. He takes a peep. And then he leaves and he starts to jog. You say a 911 call was made. What do the McMichaels say was the reason, I guess through their attorneys, was the reason they jumped into the truck to try to chase this guy? I mean, they live down the street, so he comes out and he starts to go on this jog after he goes into the construction home. On what grounds would the McMichaels chase this young man? Basically, they, they told police, Gregory McMichael was interviewed by police, and according to police after the incident, and according to police reports, they had said there had been break-ins in the, in the neighborhood, and they suspected him of that. I mean, I think the picture that's emerged is that uh, these videos and this, this kind of community was on edge looking for somebody that they thought was doing something wrong. Just to be clear, though, it's still not entirely clear who exactly was going into the house. They thought it was the same person for several months. They'd been there three or four times. But Brad, allow me to interrupt. Allow me to interrupt because maybe I didn't yeah. articulate the question well. The, uh, the picture that I have is the McMichaels living down the street. They didn't even see the kid yeah. go in to the house all they must have seen the picture i have the visual i have unless it's incorrect is one of the mcmichaels is outside one of the mcmichaels is inside and there's a kid jogging down the neighborhood after visiting a house maybe he trespassed maybe he didn't he's jogging down the street Uh, the visual i have is that's all they saw they were probably unaware of a 911 call unaware that he went into the construction home they just saw a young african-american man jogging or running down the street that prompted them to get into the pickup truck and chase uh, okay what they told police is they saw him hauling you know down the street and they saw him as this person who had been entering this home for months that is still not clear i have spoken to uh, legal experts who say even if he was the person that was going into the house the grounds under which this happened, right. it doesn't make what they did legal in the sense of you can't shoot somebody for trespassing. That's the crux of what the legal argument is. Yeah, I mean, it's those are questions that are still still have to be worked out. I mean, we don't know all the facts yet. I mean, so, but on its face, I think that's why there's been so much outrage about what has happened to be clear their attorneys are not they have defense attorneys they're coming out saying don't rush to judgment there's other sides of the story they haven't made clear exactly what those are uh they say there's another video those are all questions we are going to have to sort of got it you know got it understand yeah. better as yeah. this goes as this, as this goes forward but when you see that video i think Hard viscerally it, it, yeah. it's troubling brad what's the role of the man who was recording the shooting on his phone. He was a neighbor, somehow uh, saw this happening, according to what he has said publicly and, and what is ascertained from reports. But there are still questions about that. You know, he captured this video on his phone. In many ways, that video uh, 
has just changed the entire course of this of this case and the perceptions in this community and across the country of what happened. Okay, last question. So the two McMichaels, I presume, sit in jail. And what happens next? Give us the next uh, chips to fall from a legal standpoint, from a court standpoint that you know of, Brad. The court system in Georgia has been impacted by the pandemic, so these men have not gone before a grand jury yet. Um, that will be, uh, you know, one of the next big steps in this case where, uh, you know, they'll be going to a grand jury at some point. The GBI is still investigating, still gathering information. Um, you know, there's a lot that's still unknown as far as where this goes and what the, you know, what's going to happen in the legal system. But, you know, we will be watching closely as most people in Georgia and many around the country see how this plays out. Yeah, no question about it. Brad Schrade of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Terrific work. We'll be watching. Follow his work on the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's website. You can also follow him on Twitter. Brad, thank you. I know this is a little different to be on a sports-related podcast, but I appreciate you kind of filling in the the details and, and, and creating the visual for all of us now to follow from here on in. Appreciate it very much, and stay safe down there in Atlanta. Terrific. Thanks for having me. What an absolute tragedy. 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery jogging down the street in Brunswick, Georgia in February, shot and killed by the son of a former police officer. It's worth keeping an eye on. Brad Schrade right there of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Evergreen Golf Call, our buddies, obviously watching the markets very carefully as we inch closer to reopening the economy. The Evergreen Private Wealth Management Division been managing families' money for decades with the goal of comfortable retirements for people all over the world. I've had experiences with other firms that really only want to know, do you meet their minimum? Tyler Hayes' team is different in that respect. Their client compatibility survey at evergreengolfcall.com is one of several ways that Evergreen listens and understands your unique situation before even the first conversation with you. Everyone's risk tolerance, time horizon, investment preferences, different. Evergreen's wealth consultant gets that information ahead of time so that he or she can tailor make an approach and strategy that's perfect for you and your family's needs. There are even times that Evergreen reaches out to prospective clients to let them know that their investment philosophies just don't align, and that's okay. EvergreenGolfCall.com. It's a perfect place to start. Just click on its client compatibility survey and answer a few questions. No commitment, just a starting point. Evergreen Golf Call, a premier wealth manager in the Northwest and beyond. Unfiltered. Last week, attorneys for Gina Ford, president of Prime Sports Marketing, filed documents in a Miami court requesting NBA rookie sensation Zion Williamson to admit or deny that he and his parents demanded and received gifts, money, and or other benefits from persons on behalf of Duke University to influence him to play basketball there. 
You know, we spent some time on the Zion Williamson legal battles on episode 91P. I'd like to follow up with Daniel Wallach. He's a Florida sports and gambling attorney who's also a writer for The Athletic. He's been watching this story very closely as legal shots have been fired. Dan, I hope everything is okay in Florida. Thanks for your cooperation. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on to talk about this. So I think I have the nuts and bolts of this straight. Zion, you tell me if I'm wrong. I'll go through this. Zion signs a marketing deal with Gina Ford and her group after his year at Duke, then changes his mind, joins CAA. She screams breach, sues him for $100 million. He says our contract was never valid because you don't have a license in North Carolina. She says... I don't need a license in North Carolina because you were never a true amateur athlete receiving improper benefits before you even stepped foot on the Duke campus. And and here we are. Is that pretty much a good summary to start off with? That is the best encapsulation of where things stand now in 20 seconds or less that I've ever heard. In fact, it's taken me two minutes uh, on these talk shows to really deliver the essence because I go over the entire history. But here's the root of the problem uh, in two regards. Um, This is not just an ordinary contract that Zion's looking to back out of. It's a contract that truly may be legally defective under North Carolina law because there's a statute on the books in 40 out of 50 states that protect student athletes from predatory agents. And there are over 200 agents who've registered as athlete agents under North Carolina law. She wasn't one of them. And that law prohibits any kind of uh, initiation of contact, any solicitation, any recruitment, unless and until you've registered with the state. And if you don't do that, anything that you sign with the student is null and void. And what she's trying to do here, I believe, is, is have it both ways. She's seeking over $200, $200 million in damages based upon his athletic achievements at Duke, while at the same time trying to nullify his status as a student athlete at Duke. That's why I think her gambit will fail in the end, not before a jury, but early on before a district court judge that will be forced to make a ruling, not just on the admissibility of that issue, but whether it's even a proper line of inquiry in discovery. I mean, it makes sense. The Student Athlete Act protects student athletes, her argument is that, well, he was never a student athlete. So there's a, a very superficial appeal to that argument. But when you look deeper at the North Carolina law and you look at the basis of her claims, her lawsuit doesn't even exist if this is nothing more than a high school basketball player uh, looking for a marketing agent. His enti- the entirety of his value stems from his athletic achievements at Duke. And trying to nullify that is inconsistent with the goals of her lawsuit, it sounds more like a uh, like a like a last ditch effort to avoid losing under North Carolina law. And I don't have any any stake in this. I don't care one way or the other who wins. But it sounds like there was some early contacts made prior to the declaration of his entry into the NBA draft, and those contacts would render this contract null and void. So this really does become her only way of winning. And and I don't think it rises to the test of admissibility or relevancy for purposes of discovery for the reasons I've set out. It's too attenuated. Well, you just said there were some, some dealings before he was drafted into the NBA that would make this that make this deal null and void. Explain that in more layman's terms. What What is it that would have done just that? Okay, the law protects student-athletes. 
the moment you declare for the NBA draft, you cease being a student athlete. You've foregone your remaining eligibility. But there's a, an NCAA rule that was passed last year that uh, they, call, they refer to it as the testing the waters rule. You could declare for the draft and still have the right to pull out and withdraw Correct. from the Correct. draft yeah. at any time prior to May 29th. So his status as a student athlete could have gone all the way up through and including May 29th, depending on whether he satisfied some conditions for the applicability of that, of that extension. But the, but, but the other problem from Gina's perspective is that one of her business associates has filed his own lawsuit against her, claiming that she's reneged on an oral agreement to pay him 5% of her earnings from the Zion Williamson contract. And in that other lawsuit, this business associate of hers alleges that the initial meeting between Gina and Zion's mother and stepfather, which was organized by this business associate, took place in January of 2019 three months before Zion declared for the NBA draft. And if this allegation is proven true, and I mean, he's alleged it, and now one of her business associates has alleged it, if, if that is in fact true, unless that's just a purely coincidental meeting where they just ran, to, it ran into each other at a McDonald's, if it was any way, in any way associated with his recruitment or solicitation as a client, then that would become an automatic invalidation of the contract because it occurred unquestionably while he was still playing basketball at Duke University. And I think that recent allegation has backed her into a corner legally and really precipitated or caused this kind of last ditch allegation because these cases have been pending for more than a year. Why are they raising it now and not a year ago when they first filed suit? Because as you say, it's kind of a last ditch effort. Go back to that business associate who wants 5% who says he's got a deal for 5%. What I don't understand is 5% of what? 5% of zero is still zero. What is he entitled to? She hasn't made any money or has she in her agency off of Zion Williamson? Well, you know, in the, in, the, in the law, there's something known as an anticipatory well, anticipatory breach of contract. You don't have to actually have breached the contract in order to be subject to a lawsuit if you've basically uh, evidenced an intention not to uh, abide by a contract. I mean, she could have disavowed it either in, in, in writing or in any kind of conversation. So he may have the right to declare the contract or oral agreement being in breach, even though she hasn't even earned a dime. His bigger problem legally is going to be trying to convince a court that an oral agreement like that should be enforceable right. uh, because it's the type of agreement that is going to span many, many, many years. And under the law of most states, there is something known as the statute of frauds. And any type of oral agreement uh, that cannot be performed within one year has to be in writing and signed by the party to be charged in order to be enforceable. And, and basically a, a multi-year deal to get a piece of Zion Williamson's marketing dollars right. doesn't sound like the type of agreement that can be fully performed within one year. So I think his lawsuit may be pretty much DOA when it gets to a motion to dismiss stage. The problem is that he has surfaced now as a, as a material witness, and he can back up Zion Williamson's story and his allegation that this early meeting took place before he declared for the NBA draft. So he's a critical fact witness, and whether or not his claims survive, his mere presence and insertion into this controversy uh, actually could be a, a very harmful thing for Gina Ford, which is why she's seeking mediation with him. 
uh, in Miami. In fact, this is the first time I've seen this in my career as a lawyer where one side files a lawsuit. And before an answer is even due, the parties are already in mediation. And I think she's trying to do damage control by reining him in, settling with this this business associate and basically buying them off. Dan Wallach is an attorney in Florida and also writes for The Athletic. Dan, uh, from, a, from a real layman's point of view, what it looks like is she is threatening to expose his amateur status, throw Nike in the middle of it, throw Duke in the middle of it, throw kind of Mike Krzyzewski in the middle of it to see maybe if she can scare Zion into settling. Is that, is that a possibility here? That is not just a possibility. That is her main play here. Uh, but Zion Williamson is no longer subject to the jurisdiction of the NCAA, and nothing can happen to him beyond just being responsible for monetary damages and maybe suffering some hit to his reputation. The, the larger uh, exposure here is potentially to Duke basketball and Coach Krzyzewski, which is why she's trying to kind of leverage this for a possible settlement, given, given the broader ramifications. But I just don't see how she can prove this. Uh, because if, if, if federal prosecutors in New York couldn't tie Zion Williamson to improper payments made to attend Duke, I mean, they never even prosecuted him or, or prosecuted anybody associated with that. They've gone after almost every other instance of pay for play in college basketball. But Zion Williamson's, the rumors surrounding that weren't even deemed yeah. relevant by a court. But, but so he, how is she going to prove that so, in North Carolina? So she doesn't prove it, but she... She scares him with the discomfort of his guy, Mike Krzyzewski. She puts him under oath. She exposes the light onto Duke. And even though she can't prove anything, just the concern if Zion Williamson, uh, you know, has that in his heart, doesn't want to put Duke and Mike Krzyzewski through that, so he writes her a check. Everything has its limits. His loyalty to Duke and to Coach Krzyzewski, uh, you know, kind of decreases in proportion to the amount of money she's seeking. So the loyalty is good up to a, to a certain limit, maybe a million, two million. But given that she's, she's claiming that this exclusive marketing agreement, oh, and we didn't even talk about this. This is a lifetime contract. It's almost indentured servitude. It can't be terminated ever unless it's for cause. So her theory or her damage theory is that she's entitled to 15% of whatever Zion Williamson earns for the duration of right. his NBA career right. and after career earnings. And to put a dollar value on that, you're looking at, at something, you're not looking at anything other than eight figures here. And given the reputation that Gina Ford probably will have going forward, she's not going to be an easy sell for any potential NBA player. So I think she's hitching her wagon and, and pushing all of her all of her chips to the middle of the table right. on this lawsuit because she'll become persona non grata That's right. after this lawsuit is over. She's never going to sign another NBA player. So I think her, her willingness to settle in this case would be dependent upon Zion Williamson forking over an amount north of $10 million. I don't know what that amount is. But we're not talking a, a seven-figure settlement. That wouldn't be enough. Based on the tenor of this conversation, I can't see where Zion Williamson would write a check for $10 million. 
he hasn't earned the money. His earnings in, in his first year were somewhat limited. You know, the pandemic has also, you know, circum, you know, curtailed his, his earning capacity. Uh, he's not in a position to write that check. Of course, you could do structured settlements and installments. There are ways to creatively settle cases. But I think from his vantage point, I think he feels he was done wrongly here because this, this agent never registered. Um, she's part of some motley crew here. I mean, her background and uh, the, the, the background of her uh, business associate, there's just something do they that have doesn't any sound clients? right to me. Dan, do they have hmm? any other Do they have any other clients, any other sure, NBA sure. players? Sure, sure. Listen, she's, a, she's a somewhat of a you know, known figure in, I think, a track and field circle. She, she was the marketing agent for Usain Bolt. And I think has worked with one or two other NBA players, but okay. as far as where she where she where she fits into the hierarchy of NBA marketing agents, she's not someone with a significant or even noticeable footprint until now. Last question for you, Dan, and I'll let you run. Dan Wallach in Florida, attorney and uh, writer for for the Athletic. You can follow his work on Twitter and in the Athletic. I'm a subscriber. Dan, uh, mechanically speaking, talk to us about. If this thing continues to go on, what Coach K will be vulnerable to, just in terms of answering questions under oath? What are we going to hear? When would we hear from him, and how would we hear from him? All right, this this lawsuit will move forward in North Carolina and not Florida. There were two separate actions filed, one in Miami, one in North Carolina. The one in Miami is stayed and frozen for many, many months because Williamson challenged the personal jurisdiction of the Miami court. And when you challenge personal jurisdiction, you can automatically appeal any adverse rulings on that issue. So he's tied the case up in the appellate courts without any resolution in sight for many, many months. So this case will move forward in North Carolina. North Carolina has a, what I would consider a rocket docket. There, is a, there was a trial schedule, which is somewhat compressed. Discovery will last anywhere between four and six months. And absent further order of the court, I think you're allowed at most only six you know, deposition witnesses. So I don't believe the court will allow a fishing expedition here to basically uh, take everyone's deposition under the sun who might be associated with pay for play. I think that the judge will have a very strong hand and Krzyzewski's role in this case will be as a third party witness who might have discoverable information on the efforts of the new agent to recruit Zion Williamson away from Gina Ford because uh, Mike Krzyzewski's uh, agency is CAA and CAA is also now Williamson's agent and he may have played some role behind the scenes in talking up CAA or steering Williamson to CAA. So that role, that aspect of his role certainly seems within the bounds of proper discovery. But what, but what the- Dan, but what about the improper benefits angle and the questioning of his amateur status before he stepped on to Duke? That part of this, for college basketball fans that don't like Mike Krzyzewski or don't like Duke or think that he's gotten away with stuff over the years or hasn't had mm-hmm. the spotlight shine. That's what a lot of people want to know. Will he be asked the tough questions? Will Nike be asked the tough questions? Did Zion Williamson get any type of improper benefit before he stepped onto Duke, which would have made him ineligible for that one year at Duke University? Uh, Mitch, before that question is ever posed in a deposition to Zion, to Krzyzewski, or to Zion's mother or stepfather, uh, Zion's legal team will file a motion for protective order asking the court to limit the scope of discovery 
to the very specific issue as to whether the contract was enforceable. And under the Uniform Athlete Agents Act, um, you are a considered a student athlete if you participated and are participating in intercollegiate, you know, sports at at, at, uh, in, at, at Duke University. I don't believe yeah. that you can you can two years later you can go back in time and nullify Zion Williamson's status as a student athlete. When you look at the formation of a contract and whether there was a meeting of the minds, you look at the circumstances that existed at the time of contract formation. And that's what's relevant, not what is subsequently found out, uh, you know, that, that, that we find out a year, two years later, that took place a year before the contract was formed. I think it sounds appealing on a certain level because it directly affects whether he's a student athlete. But I believe the definition of student athlete under the Uniform Athlete Agents Act is somewhat broader than that. And I think his participation in, in, in Duke sports is enough to say he was a student athlete and, at the time. Her lawsuit doesn't even come to be okay. without his value from his exploits at Duke. She's seeking $200 million in damage, not because he was a great high school basketball player, because of exactly what he accomplished so, at Duke University. So she can't have it both ways. At, at least that's my view. Of so it. your view is, just to allow us to understand it, your view is that the court will never or may never allow her to even open up that can of worms. The can of worms I'm referring to is the amateur status and the, the, the potential of improper benefit. That can of worms may never be open because the court won't allow it to be open, right? Uh, operative word is may because there's no guarantee the court will see things the way I just posited because the, the, the scope of discovery in a federal court case is very broad. You can actually engage in somewhat of a fishing expedition, but I think there is a lack of temporal, you know, the, the, the timing of this and her theory doesn't add up when you consider what she's seeking in damages and what it's attributable to. It's attributable to his amateur status. So uh, to, 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 seek da- to seek enhanced damages based on his student-athlete participation and then on the other hand try to nullify it uh, seems somewhat irreconcilable and inconsistent, but there's no guarantee the court yeah. sees it that way. It is certainly an open question, and it's one that's going to really decide yep. what happens in this case. If the judge limits the scope of discovery and, and, and doesn't allow inquiry into amateurism or whether you receive money under the table, it's basically case over. Dan Wallach yeah. uh, uh, joining us uh, from Florida, an attorney. You can follow him on Twitter. He does a lot with this and all the other cases that uh, that involve sports and sports gambling uh, to a greater extent. And he's joining us here on episode 92. Dan, thank you very much. Stay safe down in Florida. We'll talk to you again sometime. Appreciate your participation. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on to talk about this. So Zion Williamson being sued for 100 million dollars by a marketing agency he signed a contract with right out of Duke before he decided he wanted to go over to CAA. It's getting nasty and Duke and Nike might be also right in the middle of this before too long. Hey, let's catch up with Zeke's president, Dan Black. Dan, what's new in the world of Zeke? You guys hanging in there? Yeah, no, it's been good. As we've talked about, people have been really supportive of homegrown businesses with local ownership from the get-go. And so as this thing hit, that really 
carried us and got us going. And then, uh, you know, as we've talked about, too, our business model is pretty resilient, and we were able to rally around takeout and delivery as our catering. And the biggest thing has been that the Northwest has discovered beer delivery in a big way, and they've discovered that Zeke's is the best at it. And so people are out there definitely drinking to get through this a little bit. And uh, like I say, they've been coming to Zeke's to do it. Do you think that when this is all said and done, hopefully sooner rather than later, this will continue the momentum of beer and wine delivery for you guys will continue into into normalcy? Yeah, I think it's permanent. It was something that people were discovering, you know, even before this hit. It was a segment of our business that was growing quite a bit just based on the buzz and stuff. I mean, it's a national story at this point, too. I'm talking to CNN on Tuesday, and I think it's permanent. I just think people now realize that Beer and pizza is one of the best combinations there's ever been, and they realize that, you know, they basically now got a tap house at their house if they want to order from Zeke. So, yeah, I think it's permanent. Pizza, salads, beer, wine. Remind all of our Mitch Unfiltered listeners the easiest way to go about making Zeke's a part of our kind of a regular routine while we're stuck at home. Yeah, I use the app, and it's just because once you sign up with your email and stuff, you're really just a couple buttons away from your order. and the stuff you ordered last time is like one touch and stuff. So it's, it's definitely the easiest, uh, online at zekespizza.com is good too. And then, you know, we still got our crew there in the call center. Sometimes if you got a complex order or something, it's, it's easier to call and that's 206-285 to go. 206-285-8646. So they're all good. Like I said, I use the app. I'm forever grateful for our partnership. Thank you so much to Zeke's pizza for being a partner of Mitch unfiltered. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Mitch. Take it easy. Unfiltered. All right, three interviews in the books, episode 92. We're all on the same page, episode Reggie White. Reggie White has There's to be. no question yep. about that. Most unblockable guy. The I voice ever saw. of Hotshot Scott is with us now on episode 92. He's been here more. He wants me to continue to pound home. That Hotshot Scott has been on more episodes than Jason D. Hamilton. <laughs> and again, I might have done the math wrong. Are you familiar <laughs> with Ron Jeremy? I don't know if you know who that is or not, but there's a guy named Ron Do Jeremy. I pr- Do you know Dan Marino is? <laughs> well, Ron Jeremy's complaining on Twitter and he needs a little help. Does he still work, Ron Jeremy? How old could Ron Jeremy oh, be? Oh, he doesn't look good. He does not look good. I'd did be shocked if he ever he looked no, good? No, <laughs> he never. He truly never did. Tell everybody, by the way, in passable. our audience that may not know who Ron Jeremy is, who was he? Well, he was. Uh, well, he may still be still an adult is. film actor, and maybe like a star. The most, the most famous of them all, probably the biggest name of all time. Of yeah. male, yes, adult films. Like, give me another name of a male adult film star, because I know you're huge. Are you really trying to put me on the spot yes. here? Give with, me with one a, with a Peter North call out. I mean, oh, is that is that what you're trying to make me look like? There's probably kids <laughs> watching here. God's. Anyway, he's complaining on Twitter. He needs help. Apparently, he's got this enormous old tree yeah. that his dad planted. I see what you did there. His dad planted it when he was born, the day he was born in yeah. New York City. And apparently, New York City wants to take it down. And he is- At his home? I no, think it was- No, would be in New York City. Well, it's wherever he grew up. I don't know. It's like outside the apartment he grew up on. Right. Anyway, it's been there forever. He even like goes back to take care of it, and he really wants everyone's help. So if you want to follow Ron Jeremy on Twitter and you can help him call this- Can our audience help Ron Jeremy save the tree? Yeah, he, trying to save the he tree? wants you to call this guy- The enormous- Old, long, long yeah. tree. It's been there for right? a long time. He said, I looked after the tree my whole life. They tried to chop the tree down, and he's belted himself to it. So go help Ron Jeremy. Okay. He's helped you in the past. Okay. On episode 91, who has he helped in the past? I don't know. Us, I guess, What kind at of some point? crazy line was that? <laughs> well, you know. Uh, I want to go back to episode 91. Okay. 
Back on episode 91, a week ago right now, you and I were discussing the Seattle Seahawks schedule. Yes. Do you remember that? Yep. What was my conclusion? What was Mitch or what was Mr. Postseason's conclusion of the 2020 Seahawks schedule? Record-wise or, or, or... No. You said that... Analysis. Well, they're going to have to win at least one of those San Francisco games That's for the not, tiebreaker you're, purposes. You're, you're doing well making it up. You're not even close. Okay. I don't remember what you said about the it. The swing six. Hot oh, the, yeah, the swing six. What yeah. was it? What were the swing six? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I totally remember now. <laughs> oh, I, I totally remember. I don't know what he's talking about. Do you don't know what I'm talking about? No, I, I do. Because you said the middle part of the schedule is the toughest. So I believe 16 games, this is what I said, 91, that the Seahawks have a relatively soft start and a rev- relatively soft finish. The first five, the last five, relatively soft with some speed bumps in there Your Niners are at the last game of the but year but the middle six are all ball busters yeah. is what I said I'm going to give you some mathematics to back my comment from episode 91 up because you know what came out this week which I love I don't the point spreads of every Seahawks game really you can now wager on a couple of online wagering services. Now, these will change as we get to yeah. the opening season and once the game's being played. But right now, as of right now, you can go online to certain places and make wagers on individual games with point spreads, and I have all the point spreads here for you. And in, in football, you get locked in, right? It's not it's not what it goes. It's not like horse racing where whatever well, when it goes bet, off. When yeah. you bet it, when right. You bet, yeah, so yeah. if you bet it now, you can get any one. Great. This is like betonline.org or betonline.com or something like okay. that. Okay? Dot .ag. I and this, dot .ag. And this is going to this is going to prove i think what i said is true okay well you laugh the vegas odds makers are going to yeah, prove well, it. well you right. tell me whether it, it does or okay. not okay so i'll go through the first five real quickly all right real okay. quickly week one they're a one and a half point favorite in atlanta one and a half week two they're four and a half point favorites here against the patriots and jared stidham four and a half okay four and a half i think that's kind of low but okay uh Week three, they're two-and-a-half-point favorites against Dallas here, the Seahawks are. Week four, they're four-point favorites in Miami against the Dolphins. And week five, they're three-point favorites at home against the Minnesota Vikings on Monday night or Sunday night football. Five and oh. So they are favored in all, as of now, they're favored in all five games. If you add those numbers up, I just want you to remember this number, 15-and-a-half. 15 and a half. All right. Add those numbers up. They are an aggregate in their first five games. They're an aggregate favored of 15 and a half if you total them all up. Okay. Okay. Let's skip the next six and go down to the last five. Last five. They are nine point favorites against the Giants here. Seahawks are. They are eight and a half point favorites the next week here against the Jets. They are six point favorites the next week at Washington, Jeez, huge yeah. favorites three On in a row. Right? Then they are hosting the Rams here, and as of today, they're three-and-a-half-point favorites at home against the Rams. And in the final game of the season, they're six-and-a-half-point underdogs at San Francisco. You to- So they're, they're favored in four of those five games. Yep. And if you total those up, they are a combined favorite of 20-and-a-half points against those five teams. Okay. Okay. What well, were they in the first five? Fifteen-and-a-half. Okay. So now let's talk about the middle six, which, interesting enough, when you look at it my way, you see that their bye week is right before the middle six start. So they play the five, uh, interesting bye week, and then six, wow. and then last five. All right, middle six. Week seven, they play at Arizona. 
They're actually a two and a half point favorite at Arizona as of today. Okay. Week eight, they play here against San Francisco. Pick them. Week nine, they're two and a half point underdogs at Buffalo. Okay. Week 10, they're one and a half point underdogs at the Rams in Los Angeles at the new stadium. Week 11, they play the Cardinals here. They're seven and a half point favorites over the Cardinals here. Would anybody right now, any Seahawks fans who, who know anything about the Cardinals coming <laughs> yeah, here, would not. anybody lay seven and a half after what we've uh, seen the last stay few Stay the hell away from but, that game. But they're seven and a half point favorite. <laughs> okay. And then the last of the six Monday night football in Philadelphia against the Eagles, they're two point underdogs as of now. So in those six games, they're underdogs three times. Yeah. They're pick them even one time and they're favorites Two time, two times for an aggregate of they're favored by four over those six teams. If you take them all and you put them together. Okay. So they are favored by 15 and a half in the first five. They're favored by 20, 20 and, a and a half in the last five. And they're favored by four total in the middle six. And they're underdogs in three out of the six and 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 pick them in one. So they're they're like there's only two out of the final of those middle six that they're even favored to win as of the moment. So I said, I'll go back to what I said at 91, and I stand by it. The swing six, the middle six, are going to determine, are the Seahawks a division contender? Are they a wild card contender? Are they a Super Bowl contender? Are they a number one seed contender? That, the answer to that question is going to come down to those middle six games. You are absolutely right. And here's right. the bell, ladies and gentlemen. Here's the bell. That's the official bell right there. The official there. bell. All right, I want to give congratulations to Raydell Joke Brito. He won his first career Madden Bowl. You watching? You wouldn't know him. He's an esports guy. He won the Madden Bowl on Saturday, taking home sixty five thousand dollars, sixty five grand for that uh, little. Played tournament. on TV against other people and whatever. Well, they play on video. It's a video game. On t- yeah, but they don't they broadcast it on ESPN or something. Yeah, yeah, they broadcast it. But you okay. gotta you gotta hear. He didn't pass the ball one time. Oh, which old is kind fashioned of- hard. Smash mouth football. Well, Hand it off. Who was he playing? Who was who was his team? Well, this is the funny part. It's a salary cap. So you get to build, you can take any players past and present and yeah. build your team. So his quarterback, I found this really interesting. His quarterback was punter Tress Way. I don't know who that is. He's a punter. That was his quarterback because he didn't want to spend money on Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> he had a punter because he was nothing, essentially. Hand the ball off to Gale Sayers <laughs> and Franco Harris. <laughs> Those were his running backs. And he won the whole goddamn thing doing that. He even lined up. Now, is this um, the Franco Harris, the Seahawk? Yes, Franco's unfortunately, <laughs> it was the Seahawk, Franco Harris. He lined up Joe Thomas at wide receiver. Oh, he did. The left tackle, the uh, Cleveland Browns. It's brilliant. Why not? You're not going to ever throw. Now you have one of the best blockers in the game out there at receiver who can block downfield for you. Very he nice. Didn't, he didn't run the ball one time, and he won 65 Very grand. nice. Do you know who Blake Snell is? Yes, unfortunately, now I do. Okay, Blake Snell is one of the great left-handed pitchers in all of Major League Baseball. He's also from Seattle. Do you know that? I, He's like a shoreline guy. Interesting. I don't think I knew Blake that. Blake Snell, okay. originally from Seattle, member of the Tampa Bay Rays, won the Cy Young a few years ago, dominant left-hander. He says about the return to Major League Baseball and the owner's proposal that the players not only take their prorated salary, so half of their salary, but less than half of their salary because the owners are going to lose so much money without people coming to the games yeah. that they should take less than that. His response was, I got to get my money. I'm not playing unless I get mine, okay? Says Snell. You got to understand, man, for me to go, for me to take a pay cut, it's not happening because the risk is through the roof. 
bro, I'm risking my life. If I'm going to play, I should be getting the money I signed to be getting paid. I should not be getting half of what I'm getting paid because the season's cut in half on top of a 33% cut of the half that's already there. So I'm like getting 25%. On top of that, it's getting taxed. So imagine how much I'm actually making, man. I'm not playing unless I'm getting paid. I'd what do you think of that? I'd say that that's a little tone deaf with 35 million people on unemployment. That's what I would say. What's tone deaf about it? Complaining about money. Complaining about money at this time. Now, I don't disagree that in, in any job you have, you want what you think is fair. You want your piece of the pie. Right. I, I get that mindset. There are extenuating circumstances. That's right. I and mean, this is the most un- extenuating of all circumstances. Maybe ever. Right. Just keep that to yourself at this point. If really? So he should say, I'm in. I'm, he doesn't I'm a have to say player. I'm in. He doesn't have to say anything. Just show up. Or not show up. But, oh. to, but, to, but to say, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not playing for that kind of money. Is a little toned See, down. See, I'm I'm with you, kind of. Okay. I think this is very simple. If I had Blake Snell right here, and who am I to, to be teaching anybody about anything? But if he were my son, and he's probably young enough to be my son, and I'm probably old enough to be his dad, yeah. I would say to him, I'd sit him down and I'd say, good for you. You feel strongly about something, you speak up about it. Good for you, no matter how unpopular you think it might be with the masses. You probably could have picked a better way to say it. Yeah. To me, that's what this is about. I think if you really look at the substance of what he's saying, look at the substance, get through the, I got to get my money. I mean, I got to get my money, man, bro. I got to get my money. I got to get paid. Otherwise, I'm not playing. Uh, You know, you realize how little amount of money that is. It's going to be millions of dollars. Exactly. I would say, hey, if you looked at the substance of what he's saying, which is, at the end of the day, they want us to take a prorated. So if I make seven million, he makes seven million. I'm going to get three and a half million for half the season, and then the owners are going to say, "We're going to lose all this money because there's no fans that can come. We're going to lose all this revenue from ticket sales, from merchandise, from beer sales, from concession sales. You uh, players, you got. I've got to pass that along to you. You got to take a little bit of that. If he said kind of in a thoughtful way, "Hey, I don't know, maybe." Maybe my health, maybe I, I, maybe I would choose not to play under those circumstances because I wouldn't want the risk of getting sick. I don't want the risk of getting sick. I'm not so sure people would be coming down on him the way they're coming down. I think it's yep. the way he chose yeah. to say it. Yeah, who's ever going to tell anyone that you know that they don't have a right to feel you know of to, to be worried about getting sick? Good. And if you right. don't want to play and you yeah. think that that's you know taking 25 cents on the dollar. Whether it's millions of dollars or not is something that you may not be comfortable with because you're afraid. Oh, and then he goes on to say, hey, I'm going to be quarantined for my family. I'm not going to see my kids. So I'm taking 25 cents on the dollar. I'm risking getting sick. I'm not with my kids or my wife. I'm not allowed to be with them for months at a time. I don't know if I want to sign up for that. I I don't think anybody would begrudge him that. That, that's what I said. He's not going to be the only one to have that, that opinion either. You're up. Re- All right, let's do some rest in pieces really quick. Jerry yep. Stiller, I'm sure you love oh, Jerry Stiller. Did we not talk about that? We didn't talk about it. I oh, had it on my list. God. I mean, the whole Jay Buhner, when he when he, he yells at Steinbrenner about trading Jay Buhner on oh, Seinfeld. Well, that it's was, just not just Seinfeld. You know that he and his wife, Ann Mira, Stiller were, and were, a, were, a, were a comedy team. Yep. They were a legendary husband and wife comedy team. It goes way... Way back before Seinfeld. And then yes. he, he was on King of Queens, which I thought was a yeah, really he, good he show. Yeah, he played Kevin James's father or no? Father-in-law. Father-in-law. And one of my favorite lines when Kevin James had surgery and he had a bunch of pain pills. And, and uh, I can't remember his name, but he says to him, now, son, you got to be careful with those pain pills. 
Save some for when you're better. And that line always killed me. I always thought that was a hilarious line. If you, if, <laughs> as we get off it, we go to the next RIP. I will say this about Jerry Stiller. The making, you know what makes a great, great performance, going back to the Seinfeld? Hmm. When you read, I read the other day how many shows he was actually on. You won't believe how few of the oh, episodes interesting. he was actually, and yet you see so impactful. Here, and you and you think of him as a main character who was on all the shows. That's how good he was. He was on like thirty percent, like twenty five percent, or not even maybe twenty wow. percent of the show. He was on very few episodes of Seinfeld. That's impressive. Yeah. So rest in peace to Jerry Stiller, Ben's dad, by the way. Yep. Fred Willard, I always thought was hilarious. Fred Willard passed away. This is not the guy from The White Shadow. That's his name was Ken Willard. Okay. Fred Willard was the the comic the, the comic comedy, actor. You know. Yeah, he was in the Christopher Guest movies. Re- yeah. you, you'd recognize him. Really yeah. hilarious, funny guy. And then the one you sort of hit on was Phyllis George. Phyllis George was on the uh, CBS on the NFL now, around 1975. You and I are separated by how many years? Seven. Yeah, seven. Are those seven years enough for you not to remember at the time that she was on Phyllis George? I don't remember her on the NFL on CBS. I do. You do. That remember. was right when I was a kid. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. People. I mean, I was reading about her. No one had really heard much about her. Next thing you know, she's just on, but she was great, and people. No, really, is that contra- not true? No, she was the 1970 Miss America. Right, but she wasn't a TV personality. Oh no, 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 no. Right, yeah, yeah. Right, that's right. what I'm saying. But she burst onto the scene as as the 1970 Miss America. Yeah, I think she had tried out for Miss America the previous year and got thrown out, and then she became Miss Texas. She won Miss America, and think about the vision, the foresight about the the people that think about how controversial that must have been for the executive producers of the CBS the NFL on CBS we should do a contest with themes that's a good one oh they would make the they would make the feel yeah she was Irv Cross uh Phyllis George Jimmy the Greek Brett Musburger you are looking live. You remember <laughs> yeah, Kevin Nealon sure. used to do a thing on it? <laughs> yeah. You are looking live. Yeah, that yeah. was when they reigned. They reigned. And then she went on to become the first lady of Kentucky. She married, right, the governor of Kentucky. Yes, and she also worked on horse racing events for CBS. Because she was a Kentucky, yeah. yeah. She became a Kentucky, kind of a Kentucky. She was a Dallas girl or a Texas girl. Yep. She loved the Cowboys. She became the first lady of Kentucky. She got into horse racing. Her daughter is a real star on CNN. I think covers the White House for CNN. Oh, is that right? Yeah. She's she's terrific. Her daughter's terrific. And something you may not remember, Phyllis George was on one of the Fokker movies. Did is you that know right? that? No, I yes. didn't. She played like one of the in-laws, uh, one of the Oh. Yeah, she was she was in You go back and I don't know if it was Meet the Parents, Meet the Fockers, yeah, I don't yeah. know which one Can't it was. Keep them straight. Yeah, Phyllis George. First husband was Bob Evans, producer Bob Evans. I didn't know that either. Remember? Yeah, short-lived Short-lived uh, marriage. From uh, the kid stays in the picture fame. I don't know if you ever saw that documentary. No, I didn't. It's, it's really good about Bob Evans and his life. But yeah, that was her, her first husband. It was well, his. rest in peace. 70 of leukemia, right? 70. Um, it's called poly, uh, polycythemia. It's a, it's a blood disorder where your body... Blood cancer? Well, your body produces too many red blood cells, and then it can lead to anemia. And a, yeah, it's a, 70 it's a, is not old. 70. I know. I was thinking God. 70 is not old. So. All right. I want to take a couple... Of- Couple of questions from the audience. I do. Do you happen to have an iPhone charger over there? Because <laughs> I'm at like three percent, and my camera's going to die. Well, I, you, you, well, you can hear them. I you'll, must. I must be seen. You'll. You'll. Oh, you must be seen. I must be seen. I mean, I'm a big. I don't star. have an iPhone charger. All right. Well, it'll die. No big deal. Power away. I, I don't know how this is going to go, but let's try. Let's, let's try go. to involve some people. I'm looking for hands raised. Uh, let's just start right here. 
Uh, let's start with Jeff Evans. Jeff, are you there? Can you hear me? Mitchie, hot shot. Love you guys. Nice and loud. It's great. How are you, Jeff? I was listening to you I, uh, on the MJ thing. Like, I'm the biggest Sonics fan of all time. But if you go back and watch the games, MJ didn't play great. He, he didn't play great in that series. And, you know, when you're up 3-0, it's just kind of it's kind of human nature just to let up a little bit. So I think it's kind of revisionist history to go back and say, oh, you know, if, if Glove would have beat him up the whole time, the result might have been different. I mean, it might have, but um, I don't, I don't, th- I don't think that I don't think that the um, the result would have been different. Do you think the result would have been different if, if Gary Payton was was uh, guarding him the first three games? I think the biggest problem with that series was Nate McMillan wasn't healthy. I think that was more of that. I think that was more important to them not winning than Gary guarding Michael because Michael was unguardable. Yeah, maybe Gary slowed him down a little bit, but I don't. I don't think it would have changed anything. Reggie, Reggie's up. Nice to see everybody. A uh, good first time out. I hope you. Hopefully, you do this again. Okay. Um, a couple of things on your son Max. Yes. Uh, movie Max. Yes. What were the other colleges that he picked? What was the college he picked? No, the, the other ones. Well, no, he picked the UW. But were the what were the other schools that he was looking at? Uh, I think that the final three came down to, and I don't want to speak for him, and I'm probably getting myself in trouble right now. Hopefully, they won't listen to episode 92 out there. But I think that the um, I think the final three ended up being USC. The undergraduate business school at USC and the University of Michigan in Washington, at least for the longest time, I thought he was going to go to USC. We all thought he was going to go to USC for the longest time. I got to tell you, I told my wife uh, that he was accepted to USC and is going to UW. And my wife, you know, has her master's in education. So education is a big part of her life. And she was very impressed that he got into USC. She was very. And she was like. He's not going to USC, huh? That's He's, a pretty good school. Yeah, he uh, he, wa- he, he was he was very he impressed. was leaning heavily towards USC for the longest time. I don't know if it's the pandemic or what's going on in the world, but at some point he just kind of decided, you know what? Uh, I want to go to the University of Washington. He's going. He's going to the Foster School of Business at the University of Washington. I would have liked to him to really seriously consider Michigan, but here's what happened: we visited all these colleges except for Michigan. And we decided with Michigan is if he got in to Michigan, mm-hmm. which is a real difficult school to get into, that once he got in, we would go visit before he made his decision. So he gets in and then we can't visit. We can't travel. We oh, can't visit. Right, yeah. So he would have had to, cho- if he was going to choose Michigan, he would have done it sight unseen. So that was not going to happen. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure I, it's beautiful I, I, though. I'm sure it's a great campus. Oh my God. And, yeah. Oh my God. It's great. There. Ann Arbor's unbelievable. Yeah. So I think that knocked Michigan out. And then I just thought for the longest time he was going to USC. He was going to their business school, going to USC. And then the day or two before May 1st, the deadline, he said, mom, dad, I'm, I'm going to Washington. He picked up the Washington hat. <laughs> you got him all lined up out there. He's taking his challenge to Washington. Washington hat. <laughs> Let's try Laszlo. Hi, Laszlo. How are you? Hey, yes. Uh, this has been a lot of great show. Thank you. Um, I graduated high school in 69 in Northern Virginia, and the big guy on sports radio there was Warner Wolf. And I'm curious, when you were in D.C., did you know Warner Wolf and – I think when I was in D.C., Laszlo, I think that Warner Wolf was in New York at that point. He was he he ended up being, 
You know who Warner Wolf is? Does I anybody don't. know who Warner Wolf is? No. He was one of these legendary kind of local sport in the days that local sports on TV, like eleven o'clock newscast. You remember when the day? See, sure. out here maybe not never was the case. Well, out no, here. I mean I, I could tell you from every channel. It was Wayne Cody. It was Bruce King. On Tony Ventrella. Right. Yeah, I can name back him. east. The guys that did sports on the newscast, like in Washington and New York, and so they were huge stars, personalities yeah. and made tons. And t- George Michael, before he became the national George Michael, um, the lead singer of Wham. No, the other George Michael, <laughs> the sports, the, machine. Uh, sports machine, yeah, George yeah. Michael. But but Warner Wolf went to CBS. WCBS in New York, the guy that he's talking about, he's from Washington originally, okay. went to CBS, he became a big star in the CBS affiliate, the local CBS, and he used to say, let's go to the videotape, that was his thing, okay. let's go to the videotape, I want to try uh, Jay Serta, Jay Serta, how are you? Hey, hey, uh, did you end up watching the Seminole match today? I did not, I was too too busy preparing all of this stuff, trying to figure out how I was going to get a good camera I was going to get get a, get a little tan going. I have an extra light here. I had to make sure that I put my Mitch Unfiltered mug up. I, I was just too a busy. Shill. That's what you are. I, I was too busy on the show. I saw like the first two or three holes. There were shitty shots left and right in the first three <laughs> show, holes. Guys hitting the ball over the green from like 65, 80 yards, and I turned it off. How was it? Who won? Um, it was Rory McIlroy and um, Dustin Johnson that won. Yeah. But then since you didn't watch it, because I'll just save you time, did you cover your camera today? Did I? So you can't see yourself uh, on the Zoom call. Oh, you're changing the subject. Uh, I, I'm just, I, I have a little corner here. I, I'm trying not to look at myself. I'm looking at you. Right <laughs> That's all I needed to know. That's all you need to know. <laughs> you're, on, you're laughing at my insecurities. Thanks very much for that. I'm over on page two. I don't want to look I at really, myself. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, let's go to Marissa. Marissa, can you hear me? I can, yes. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah. Perfect. Um, my question is, uh, how do you plan on naming your episodes past 99? Uh, that's a good question, Hotshot. Yeah, I've been thinking about it. Benoit Benjamin for zero? I don't know. <laughs> is that what we're doing? <laughs> Double yeah, zero? Benoit Benjamin. Uh, Benoit Benjamin's family wouldn't name Benoit Benjamin for <laughs> is zero. That right? Okay. Uh, I don't know because, you know, I don't know when we started it. I don't think we started it until about 12, 13, 14, or 15 I think maybe the first few, when we get to 100, we'll just go zero, one, two, three. But at some point, I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we should just quit doing the just podcast. Quit doing it. Maybe that. Maybe <laughs> just quit doing the podcast. Maybe that's right. uh, maybe that's the uh, the answer. Where I, did I, Benoit I, Benjamin go to college? Come on, give it to me. Benoit Benjamin. Creighton. Wow. Well done. That was Stop that the was, man. That was impressive. Yeah. You don't know sports, Mitch. The reason that you do all this <laughs> cockamamie non-sports yeah. is because you don't know sports. You're hiding something. That's what yeah. I used to hear in 1995, 96. The guy doesn't know sports. The reason he does all this other stuff yeah. is because he doesn't really know anything about sports. You only heard it in 95, 96? Seven. Okay, thank you. Eight. That's more like it. Nine. Ah, <laughs> uh, let's see here. Who's next? I don't see anybody on the. Oh, there's. Let's get Roger in here. Can I get Roger in here? Hey, Roger, how are you? I'm doing great, Mitch. Love the live format here. This thank is a you. Lot of fun. Thank you. Listen, uh, the Dunbar thing has a, a problem for the Seahawks. They don't have a lot of money left. Do you think they should go out and try and replace a cornerback, or are you still on Clowney to come in? <sighs> Well, <laughs> ready to get rid of Dunbar. Are, are we sure that he's not playing, Roger? Are we 100% sure that he's not playing for the Seahawks? Well, if his, if, if his attorney can be believed, uh, he'll be back uh, next week. But I think it'll be problematic to get him in here. I really don't. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. I think they got to cut him. If, if he's not going to be able to play, if he's going to end up in jail or he's going to end up suspended and he's not going to play for the Seahawks, I think they probably have to cut him at that point. Yeah. Save the $3.4 million. 
and move along. Now you're asking me, would I rather at that point Jadeveon Clowney or another corner? I don't know who that other corner is. I think there's a guy a lot of people are talking about that I don't know that may, may have played for Tennessee last year. I'm not sure. But uh, I don't know what my choice – got to tell me what my choice is at corner versus Jadeveon Clowney. I, I, for one, think they need to bring Jadeveon Clowney back if they can. I think it's a mistake. I love Bruce Irvin. I love Benson Mayoa. Yeah. I love these guys. I think that Jadeveon Clowney is being disparaged around the country. The three sa- Everybody's on the three sacks. They're looking at the sacks. I, I don't think the people that watched him when he was healthy – I don't think those are the people that are talking. The people that watched him when he was healthy, in that San Francisco 49ers game and a few of the other games, he was very disruptive. I think they need to bring Jadeveon Clowney back, personally. Well, they're definitely better with him. So, yes. Why do my friends keep telling me the Seahawks have plenty of money to sign Clowney, but you're telling me that they don't? How much money do the Seahawks actually have? We can go through it. We can go through it. They have right now about $16.5 million below the cap. Right now. Okay. Okay? He needs to save a chunk of that money for... Guys that get cut. Right. And when you say a chunk, are we talking $5 million, $2 million? Whatever he wants to do. What happens if he wants to acquire a guy in the middle of the season? What happens if somebody gets hurt? What happens if Russell Wilson gets no. hurt? He wants to go out and get a quarterback. Yeah. He's got to have the money to do that. Fine. So no general manager is going to get themselves so close to the to the cap number where they have no flexibility in the case that they have to do something. Okay. So that's the answer to the question. Now, if they cut this guy, then they've got 20 because you get $3.4 million. So from, they go from 16 and a half to 20 Ultimately, what do they have? Do they have a one-year, $10 million contract, $11 million contract for Clowney right now? That would leave him with just $6 million, bucks, yeah. $5 million. Bucks. And by the way, it's not going to be more than one, ten, one, one year, $10 million. $10 million for a guy who came out of the gate at 22. Don't, don't forget. He's going to take 10 now? No, $10 million for a guy who they offered just a little bit while ago, like one year, 15 or 16. Yeah. Now they're taking that off of the table. Yeah. So I don't know. You have to talk to your friend about that. I don't, I don't know whether your friend's right I don't want or to talk wrong. To him. Is it Eduardo? It's close enough. How Good. are you? Uh, love, the, love the format. This is great. A um, couple, of, couple of things. First of all, I actually met Ron Jeremy when I was a youngster. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, it, 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 so hot, hot shot maybe know this. So there used to be a show called Comdex. It's a very, it's a, it was a very big, uh, you know, tech show. Now, in Comdex, there was also the porno Comdex, which was literally like below in the bowels of, of the different casinos. So, you know, I was playing something with a bunch of friends and uh, colleagues, and we went out to see the porno Comdex and who it was. It was Ron Jeremy there. And I got to tell you, he is as disgusting in person as he is <laughs> <laughs> on, on video. You know, so anyway, that was kind of weird that you said that because it just reminded me when I did that. So is this your way of saying you want you want him to save the tree or not? What, do, you, do you have a do you, are you taking an are you taking an official position on the tree or not? Uh, I guess I'm uh, this is not great for radio but I'm going to pass on that one. Okay. Yeah. okay. On the old long yeah. thick yep. tree? Yeah. Is that what we're talking about here? Poor tree. All right, Pat, you're up. Pat, how are you? Couple questions for you. Sure. Uh, you told a story way back when about Mike Tirico and a college friend oh. named Chunkster. Oh, God. That's a good story. And I was wondering if you could retell it. Oh, God. Do I really have to on the free show? You don't You don't have to. And then all us golf enthusiasts, we yeah. know you're, you're a golf fan. I love it. You've never told us about your actual golf game. My so golf game. Maybe you can. 
Wait, you've never Let talked about your golf, your golf game? I don't like to like talk about my golf game. My, my golf game. First of all, I don't know anything about my golf game because I, I haven't picked up a golf club in about, well, since like October, like mid-September last year. You didn't rush out when they opened? I have not, no, oh, because I'm one of these guys that likes to go practice before I play, like oh. a few days worth of practice. And I don't know if you followed this. You weren't allowed to go out and practice. Right. The, the Until this closed. week. Yeah. They sent out a note this week that that's changed now. You, no, the Rangers were open to those. At, at our club, you had to agree that you were going to play. I see. So the only way I could practice would if I were to lie and say, I'm going to play. Then you go out and you get 30 minutes of practice. And then I go, no, I stink. I'm, I'm not going to go out and play. <laughs> so that was the only way I could actually do that. So I'm a guy that likes to practice. So now this week, I'm going to try to get out there and practice because now you're allowed, at least at our club, you're now, they've relaxed the rules. You're allowed to go out and practice for an hour. If you have an appointment and you don't get near, near anyone, you're allowed to go practice for an hour. And you're so going to do that. I'm going to do that this week. So it'll be the first time. My golf game. I don't know. I, what, what do you want to know? Pat, ask me a question about I actually my want to know game. about the chunkster, but you want to know about the chunkster. Okay. Do I really got you know the chunkster story? I, I vaguely remember there was a fisticuffs. Yeah. Yeah. The gal that, that Mike Tirico ended up marrying, and I think he's still married to, was the point guard of the Syracuse basketball team, Debbie Gibberatz. She was great. Great. And she okay. we, we we had a circle of friends, including Debbie. Mike was not I mean, he was kind of in my circle of friends, but kind of not. Wasn't he, he was kind of the edge. big man on campus? Yeah, was, oh, oh, yeah. He was a big deal at Syracuse. Oh, he was a big. Ask him. Uh, he was <laughs> he was huge. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So uh, Mike Tirico dated Debbie Gibratz, who who also kind of had a thing for a good friend of mine in our circle okay. named Steve Bradley, who would go on to now, he's one of the great writers, like an East Coast writer in Hartford, Connecticut. He's a great sports writer. But yeah, anyway, Steve he Bradley. was kind of in our circle. And he was this big, lovable guy who we called the Chunkster. Okay. And she liked him. Really? She really she, did? She liked, she, she, I think she loved Tariko, but she really liked the Chunkster. Give us an idea of what how big, like my size Chunkster? Him, taller than you, Kind of built the same way. Okay. Just this Jesus, lovable guy. Too. This right. lovable guy uh, named the Chunkster. I'm, I'm lovable too. Go on. And Tariko hated the Chunkster for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And it boiled over one night in the snow. Like after a party or? Well, Tariko, when he was a junior, I think he, no, he would have been a senior. I was a junior. He was one year ahead of me. Tariko. He was always the golden boy. He was going to be the ESPN star. Syracuse was going to get behind him. He was going to be the star of that era, which he turned out to be. And by yeah. the way, I you know it sounds like I have something against Tariko. He's had a great career, and he's he's become kind of a Hall of Fame type yeah. of sports broadcaster. So I I don't I don't begrudge him anything that he's he's accomplished. But in those days, we were always envious of him. I guess you could use the word jealous, because. The school was behind him in a big way. Okay. He he had the look. Everything about him was going to be, he was smooth. He was great from the time he got there. He was going to be a legendary guy. Well, fast forward to his senior year. He was actually, we were just talking about jobs in local TV. The CBS affiliate in Syracuse, New York, which was a top 50 market, their guy left, went somewhere else or whatever, and they were looking for a weekend sports guy. To become the weekend, the number two sports guy at the CBS affiliate in the top 50 market in the country, Pretty which was un, it's unheard of that a college kid. Right. And they gave it, they gave a tryout to Mike Tirico. Okay. I'll never forget the tryout. I'll never forget the tryout. We were all watching the tryout. Really? Did you ever see broadcast news? I think so. 
Long time ago. Brooks, Albert Brooks's character on B- B- Broadcast News. Anyway, Tariko on the tryout <laughs> on a Saturday night is doing the sports cast and the sweat starts coming down his face. Oh, no. And he's got no nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. I, it's oh. pouring down, coming off his nose, off his forehead. I mean, he yeah. didn't know. I mean, this is like his first time on the air. Yeah. It was probably a combination of the lights yep. and his nervousness. Yep. And he just started schwitzing probably like Whitney Houston. You remember Whitney Houston used to actually <laughs> hold a schwitz towel sure. to wipe her. Uh, and some of the coaches do it. John Thompson used to do it. Mr. T always has a towel. Yeah, a schwitz towel. Fun, yeah. He didn't have a schwitz towel. So he was out there for oh, about three and a half, four minutes. Guy. And he was just on. And he was doing a good job. But he was schwitzing. Like nobody's business. Fast forward, he gets the job. Wow. So one winter night, I just remember one winter night, he's doing the sports on Saturday night, and Deb and I and Chunkster and everybody's in a in a condo, the the group of us, and he finds out that Debbie's in there with, with the Chunkster. Yeah. I don't know that anything was going on, but he was not happy with it. <laughs> and before you know it, it was like, let's go, Chunkster. He just barked. Now you got to understand, Mike is about five six, five seven, okay, maybe, and yeah. wide, a little bit, a little bit wide. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a, a, a funny looking character when you see him in person. And Chunkster's like six two, six three, like maybe 300, 270. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, oh, "Do you really want to do this, Mike?" And they're out in the ice of Syracuse, uh. New York. And it's like, "Come on, Chunkster, let's go, <laughs> let's go, Chunkster." This you've had this coming a long time. And he just dukes up like like, he's, like the Notre Dame fighting Irish around. guy. <laughs> he's dancing around like the Notre Dame fight, like he wants to fight. Him. And God. Chunkster looks like he's like, "Oh, come on, Mike, yeah. we can't do this. I don't want to half you sock you one." I mean, right, it, right. he was like, and it never, nothing ever happened. All right, uh, one more. Let's do one more and let's go to Wheezy. How's my boy Wheezy doing? Hey, nice to see you. This was a surely a treat to hear and see both of you guys, even though I got to see most of Scott's nostrils, which, but you know, yeah. better than not seeing Scott at all. My, it was on my phone, but anyway. <laughs> hey, uh, question, Mitch. Yes. Uh, personal question. So personal question. We, we obviously all love your stories. Um, and we know your father's a lawyer, so I kind of think this is where you get it. But where do you get your ability to tell the stories? Uh, we always hear stories of your father being this kind of a, um, a rambunctious fellow from your stories. Which rambunctious? Stories. I don't know about rambunctious. rambunctious. Maybe a little ra- at, at times. aggressive. <laughs> aggressive, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was a but, great uh, storyteller. He was, uh, yeah, I don't know. The, Wheezy, the short answer is I don't know where I got Whatever ability I have, some people would say it's terrible. My my ability to tell a story is is forever and ever, and it takes too long for me to tell a story. So I guess beauty's in the eyes of the beholder. But any storytelling prowess that I have, I got from him because he was always a great storyteller. He was the smartest man I ever knew, and he was a great lawyer, and he was he was funny and generous and bright and everything about him, articulate. He he was a five tool player, Wheezy. My dad was a five-tool player, so I'll, I'll give him all the credit for any storytelling that I have. Thank you so much, Mitch. Thank you, Scott. You're very welcome for my storytelling ability. <laughs> that's what he's saying, I guess. I don't know. I guess that's it. Do this you have something great. else? No, I, no. I'm, after Ron, how do I do better than Ron Jeremy stories, right? But this guy did say something pretty interesting in chat I want to read really quick. Bruce King, who I mentioned, was on. He was. I, were you here for Bruce King? Yeah, sure. Know. Okay. And the play of the night. Ah, the Seahawks. Yeah. Bruce King went to New York and took Wolf's spot when Wolf moved on. Oh. How about that? And then after one year, King came back to Como. And Rick, I mean, but anyway, so that's kind of a weird little connection. As great as Bruce King was, may, I, may he rest in peace. Yeah. I think he's gone now. 
Um, no, I, I don't picture King as a New York guy. That's probably why he came back after a year. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a stirring tribute to Bruce King. Hey, I'm waving to all the studio audience members. Thank you very much for being a part of it. I hope you'll come back. Maybe we should do it again. What's I, your opinion? Should we do this each and every week, have a studio audience and have questions or not? I right? loved it, and I, I want to do Stump the Band. I do miss Stump the Band. Stump the Band. At some point, we Are we allowed to call it Stump the Band? Or am I going to hear from attorneys? Well, you stole it from, from Johnny, Johnny Carson. Carson. And, by, <laughs> and by the way, I never heard from Johnny Carson's attorneys when I stole it from K, uh, KJR. So, so I don't let's think... Let's do it. Yeah, I think Stump the Band now. We can do it. We can do it. Episode Reggie White is in the books.